0: Hi everyone and welcome to episode 251 of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's interview is Sam's Spoons, an interview with Sam and Carrie Perry. My name is Matt Sabatello. My name is Richard Johannesson. So this is one of the most powerful interviews we have for a story of hope and inspiration. Sam was so sick that she couldn't remember how to navigate her own neighborhood. She was going through red lights She had debilitating brain fog and cognitive issues, and she had severe chronic body-wide pain for many years. She first got sick when she was 16 years old in high school, and she was treated through a team of doctors at Turnpaw Health and Wellness Center in collaboration with her mom. As Sam got older, she transitioned her care into her own hands, and today, she's an independent 23-year-old young woman who's living the best version of her life and is healthier than ever. So if you need a story of hope and inspiration, and you're in the throes of it. This is the podcast episode for you, where Sam teaches us a really important lesson that this is not your forever. You can and will get better. So without further ado, Sam Spoons with Sam and Carrie Perry.
1: Hey, Sam and Carrie, and welcome to the Tech Bootcamp podcast.
2: We're excited to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us.
1: We are really excited to have you guys as well and uh, I know folks know the two of you more as Sam Spoons and we're going to talk about Sam Spoons when we get toward the end of the podcast but Sam why don't you start by sharing with us where you're calling in from.
2: Sure I am calling in from a cool little surf town called Santa Teresa in Costa Rica.
1: Cool well um, we appreciate you uh, calling in on your vacation. It's very kind of you to uh, call in from Costa Rica. I don't think we ever had someone uh, Uh, take the time out of a long, enjoyable uh, time in Costa Rica and work work with us. So, um, Carrie, where are you calling in from?
3: Well, I got to tell you, Rich, first, Samantha is living in Costa Rica. So you'll get to that as we get in this podcast. But I am calling from Enola, Pennsylvania, right outside of Harrisburg.
1: Oh, I'm sorry. You're not in Costa Rica, but I guess, we all can, <laughs> I guess we all can't live Sam's life, but I guess That's we're going right. to learn more about why Sam is in Costa Rica. I thought you were vacationing and I shouldn't assume because we know what happens when Rich assumes it's never good for him. Uh, but we'll, uh, we'll, we, we want to, we don't want to digress, Sam. So Sam talk to us about what you're doing in Costa Rica.
2: Sure. I am currently working as a yoga teacher here in Costa Rica. Um, It's not something that I had originally planned on doing, but um, my path led me here and I absolutely love it.
1: Oh, that's really cool. So you're a yogi.
2: I am a yogi. Yes.
1: (laughs) That's really cool. So, and and Carrie, what do you do in Pennsylvania?
3: Well, in Pennsylvania, aside from running Sam Spoons Foundation, I'm actually a podcaster myself. Um, I am a reformed lifestyle reporter and I now do a very fun podcast podcast with a former co-worker, and we do a lot of multimedia stuff too, so that's what I'm doing.
1: Oh, that's really cool. So we're honored to have a fellow podcaster on, and, and probably a much better podcaster than us. <laughs> but you know, I don't want to digress. We, we are proud of being the peanut butter and jelly podcast of the Lime community. So Samantha, talk to us about what it was like growing up. What was it like being uh, Sam of Carrie Perry's uh, world?
2: <laughs> be kind child be kind <laughs> it's a great world no it was a beautiful world um I grew up in a happy family I have four awesome sisters um I was five so girls yeah there's five of us my dad's oh dad.
1: your poor dad
2: <laughs> I know right uh yeah I love them all I grew up in Pennsylvania was super active I played soccer since I could walk I Ran track in high school. I was always on the go. One of the most curious children ever. My mom jokes that I came out of the room asking questions because I would cry, but how? That was basically how I cried.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So Sam, talk to us about the enriching environment that your parents created for you during your childhood.
2: Sure. um, I was in an awesome neighborhood with so many friends and so much outdoors. I was always outside playing, imagining, moving. I would drop my backpack off at the stoop uh, at the end or when I got off the bus and just run and play in the backyard all day. Uh, They really gave me the space to explore the things that I wanted to explore. I was so into soccer and I was super nerd. I loved science and math and reading and things like that. So they really gave me the space and the tools to be curious, be a learner and be a mover too.
1: So, talk to us about what it was like to be Carrie's daughter, right? Your mom, your mom was uh, was a media professional. So, what was it like to be the daughter of a famous media professional?
2: <laughs> well, uh, it was fun. She she's known in the community, Carrie. Perry. I mean, it has a ring to it. Come on,
1: uh, sure does. <laughs>
2: yeah, she she's well connected in the community, and everywhere I went, I used to not like going to the grocery store with her because we would be stuck in conversations all the time. Now it's something I appreciate because I'm. The same way but growing up it was like oh mom found another friend oh another person knows mom she's she's well connected and, and well loved yeah
1: well and and the other downside to having a well connected and well loved mother is you couldn't get in trouble without somebody ratting you out
2: oh yeah I was a pretty tame kid but I think because I had to be
1: <laughs> <laughs> so Carrie talk to us about Sam what was she like as a child
2: she was such a fun kid
3: she was the kid who was so content with a piece of paper and a crayon or Play-Doh or walking around, you know, and picking up rocks. She was an explorer and she loved books like from a little, just a young age. She'd put herself in this huge basket that we had of books and she'd sit in the basket and she would just leaf through and whether she could read or not. And that was just her. She just had a zest for life. She had a zest for learning and anything that Sam has done. She does it at like 200 200- And we laughed that one summer, every single camp that she attended, even a camp that was for field hockey, which she had never picked up a field hockey stick for before she was camper of the week, the entire summer, she'd come home and she was camper of the week. And that was just Sam. She just has always been such a vibrant, fun, loving, intelligent, beautiful person.
1: So Carrie, now tell us about your community, right? You, you folks are uh, in the Lyme Belt, right? Uh, Pennsylvania actually has the highest Lyme disease rate of any state in the union. Uh, you've passed New York and, uh, and, and Long Island in particular, where Matt and I grew up. So uh, talk to us about um, what you knew about ticks and tick diseases during Sam's childhood and what steps, if any, you were able to take to protect her from coming in contact with ticks.
3: You know, um, I admittedly didn't know much at all, and primarily because I had one friend that had been bitten by a tick because she was at a cabin at her family's house in her early 20s. She became incredibly sick, and then she found wellness. Beyond that, that's the story that I knew about someone getting sick from Lyme. And so there wasn't this great fear of ticks. In fact, I grew up in a log home in a very wooded area, and it was nothing for my parents. To pull a tick off of the dogs, pull a tick off of my brother, burn it, do whatever and move on with life. Like there was no sense of urgency if you got bitten by a tick. So cut to a few years ago when all this stuff happened around us, I was like, what is going on? And quite honestly, with all the symptoms and everything she had, it didn't even phase me that it could be Lyme disease was not even on my radar. I knew nothing.
1: So you were aware of ticks because as someone who, was, who had companion animals, you'd take the ticks off of the dogs at times. You had outdoorsy brothers who were probably rolling around in the, uh, in the woods, and sometimes right. ticks would be pulled out of their heads. Uh, but other than just being generally aware that there was this gross bug that might bite you, you really didn't have any, any awareness.
3: No. I mean, it, as I know what I know now, I mean, I was like a neophyte. I knew nothing. Absolutely nothing.
1: So Sam, you were, um, you were a smart kid reading books even before you could read, uh, sitting in the book basket. Uh, you love science, uh, so you're a good student and just generally a geeky kid, right? So um, you, you, were, you were very much invested in your education. You were living in a household with parents who offered you all kinds of opportunities and enrichment. So what did you know about ticks and tick diseases when growing up in the Lyme Belt in the state that has the highest Lyme disease rate in the country, um what did you learn from either school or from coaches or from camps or from any other place I know your your, your parents didn't know a whole lot but any other place what did you know about ticks
2: well it seems absurd because you just said I lived in a lion belt but I knew nothing I had pulled ticks off of me as a kid we'd find them in the shower pull them off whatever I had no idea they could make you super sick I really didn't know anything
1: So if you think back to your childhood, how many times do you remember pulling ticks off of you when you were either in the shower or coming back from camp? Or I mean, how many different times do you think you were bitten that you would know? Yeah,
2: that I would know of. That's the key. Um, But at least a handful of times noticing them on me. I know my sisters had them more than me. I I guess maybe I never didn't notice them or or they didn't like me then as much. Um, But yeah, at at least five to ten times.
1: So, Carrie, do you remember taking ticks off of your children and and Sam in particular during uh, during her childhood?
3: I I really don't because she must have just found them, you know, in the shower after she took off play clothes or her athletic clothes and handled it. I remember our other daughter um, freaking out one time because she found a tick in a place that it was... no tick should go. And she was flipping out about that one, Um, you know, or there was a tick that they found in the bed, you know, trying to nestle up to them. But I never had to pull a tick off of any of my children. Never one time.
1: Now, Carrie, during the course of your children's childhood, did you have any companion animals, dogs, cats, any kind of indoor, outdoor animals?
3: We always had dogs. We've always had dogs.
1: And, And were the dogs coming in at times with ticks on them that you had to remove from the dogs?
3: Oh, yeah. And I remember having them on you know, the preventative medicine, but I foolishly didn't know that, OK, if the dog gets you know, bit by the tick, it will protect the dog for the most part. But the tick is still sitting on the dog. You know, it's still coming into the house. So, you know, yeah, I took them off lots of times and they were usually engorged ticks.
1: So Carrie, I have four children. We've always had dogs and cats. And one of the things that I was always anxious about as a tick woke dad is that my kids are always laying all over the dogs and laying with the cats and the cats and the dogs are in bed with them. And were your five daughters similar in the way they interacted with your companion animals?
3: Our dogs are our children. Our dogs are like another sibling. Our dogs are pathetically not treated as animals. They're just these four-legged furry things that... Just have them look a little different than us, but they're like the same thing. We just, we adore them. So yeah, they're up against us all the time.
1: So they're sitting on the couch with you and they're sleeping in oh, bed yeah. with your kids and doing all those kinds of things. I would, again, same thing with my family, even now, right? So um, so you didn't see that as risky behavior, right? It, it's not something that, you know, with, you'd see as risky. And, and one of the things I'll share with you is uh, I recently took a picture of one of my children who was home from college in bed with the dog sleeping with her and we posted the picture on our instagram there are all kinds of people that accuse me of being a bad parent so <laughs> my
3: goodness it's
1: uh Can't it put is, them all. Of but it is it is it is a dangerous activity if you're not taking proper precautions right if you're not aware and you're not checking and you're not properly uh protecting yourself from this so all right so so we now have this environment where we have this beautiful kid Sam who is easy to parent and she's easy to get along with and she's really engaging in developing herself athletically and and intellectually and what was your goal Sam I mean where 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 did you see yourself as you were growing up in Pennsylvania as the as the child of Carrie Perry
2: I I think at that point, I, I wanted to go to medical school. I wanted to be a doctor. Uh, I wanted to first play soccer or run track or both in college. I felt super motivated and wanted to explore those opportunities. Um, and yeah, I, I actually, I wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon. I had been tra- uh, shadowing some orthopedic surgeons, a really awesome trauma surgeon. And I thought, yeah, I want to do that. That's my
1: goal. So you, were, you always had a heart for <laughs> healing other people, right? You wanted to be a healer. Yeah
2: I, yeah,
1: I did. And of course, you're, you're, you're a science geek. So uh, you also wanted to, you wanted to develop that part of your aptitude so that you can help other people heal.
2: Oh, yeah. I wanted to understand it. I wanted to understand the human body and why it does the things it does and, and use that knowledge to help other people.
1: So Carrie, what kinds of things were, Sam started to mention this, what kinds of things were you doing to help Sam to pursue this vision that she would become a, an orthopedic surgeon?
3: Well, Sam was in the gifted programs of school, so she always had enrichment and she had some really cool opportunities being in Pennsylvania and being near a university uh, or being near UPenn. Um, she had some cool opportunities to do, it was actually called um, Perry Outreach, ironically, and it, it gave her the, this incredible opportunity to spend a day with like-minded professional women who are biomechanical researchers and orthopedic surgeons. And these young women were able to go in and learn about both of these uh, professions. She did that um, because of the line of work that I did and had connections with um, our local Penn State Hershey Hospital. She could go in and shadow a doctor. Um, You know, we just tried to open up as many doors for her, but it was just as much her responsibility to be excited about doing them and wanting to do them than me pushing her to do them. I I just kind of took her lead and then as a parent, Developed what I thought would be helpful for her.
1: So, Sam, when did your symptoms first begin to surface? The symptoms you now know to be your Lyme disease symptoms?
2: Uh, so, I was doing winter track, I remember. Uh, I was training super hard and still going to soccer practices uh, when I was I just turned uh, 16. And well, at least first, I, I thought I had the flu for about a week. I uh, didn't think anything of it, just took off school. Came back, everything was fine, kind of. Um, and slowly, I thought I was overtraining. I was getting joint pain. I was, for the first time since I was of napping age, taking naps after school, which I never did. I had a problem sleeping. Um, and for me to be sleeping more often, that was a red flag. So I was, um, I just turned 16, and, and it went from training really hard to, to wondering why my body was starting to slow down at that age.
1: So Sam my, my, my vision of you as a 15 16 year old kid is you didn't have time for sleeping, right you were going to okay. become an orthopedic surgeon you were an athlete you were you were you were a, you were a, a person who was invested in her education sleep was not something you had time for and now you're napping right So you had this really radical change in behavior and it was was not something you were comfortable with right
2: Yeah, correct there were no, no times for naps. <laughs>
1: Okay, or sleep at all, or maybe even yeah. eating. Right? I mean, you're just a busy gal, right? You're you're a gal that's that's happening, and you're working towards your your dream uh, profession of uh, of working as a as a as a doctor, right? So, Carrie, talk to us about this. How did how did uh, how did this illness get on your radar? How did how did you find out that Sam was um, was first dealing with a flu, and then uh, maybe worse?
3: Yeah. So the thing about Sam is she's very in tune to her body and she's very articulate. So she could explain what she was feeling and what was going on. And I took her seriously all the time because she always took very good care of herself. So the fact that she's coming to me, noticing these deficits that are really abnormal. Um, I distinctly remember her waking me up super early ahead of having to get up early to go to an indoor track meet. And she said, mom, I don't think I can do it. And I'm like, what do you mean you can't do it? She said, I can't. I just, I can't, that's not a word Samantha used, you know, I can't do something. And that was very shocking to me. And then shortly thereafter that, it was her having these weird bouts of like nausea. So I remember we're also avid skiers. She's a snowboarder now, and we've grown up going out, you know, skiing and everything. So I remember we were heading out to our local ski resort, stopped to get a bite to eat. She's like, "I, I can't even be in this area. Like I can't even I don't know what is going on. And so when she gets back to school, it's this combination of I'm exhausted. It's three o'clock. I I don't feel well. I I'm exhausted. And she's not even hasn't even been able to fuel her body that well. She can hardly stand to eat in the cafeteria. So all of this stuff was incredibly concerning to me. And so I thought, well, we're just going to go to our provider and we're going to get some blood work done. Let's just like figure out what the heck is going on with her. And that was probably, you know, I I started to take her seriously pretty much right away.
1: Okay. So what was, what was Sam's health like prior to this? Was she a healthy kid? Was she a sickly kid? Was she, you know, maybe not overly healthy, overly sickly, but somebody who had, uh, you know, regular contact with doctors?
3: Yeah, she was always a very healthy kid. She always ate well. Um, The only thing she consistently had was a sinus infection in the fall. I mean, she always seemed to get this a sinus infection, which is really little. She got chronic ear infections up until we almost had to put tubes in her ears and then it just went away. But that was the only other thing. I mean, this is not a kid who was like saddled with getting sick a lot. You know, she was too active and outside and, you know, hungry for, for food. And uh, she just was never a kid who was down and out.
1: So, Sam, what was it like when you first went to a doctor um, after suffering these symptoms?
2: Um, now, my memories are not, I don't know if they're com- they're complete. It's It gets fuzzy because I lost some cognitive function, I guess, when I was sick. But um, I don't know if I really took myself that seriously when I went to doctors. I was like, yeah, I'm starting to feel this, but I don't know. And um, Let's just get some blood work done. And so, um, yeah, I think we first went to my family doctor, um, because a friend had suggested a Lyme test or, we didn't do a Lyme Lyme test. test. No, we we didn't didn't, do a Lyme test.
3: Then we just, you just went to the family doctor and we just were like, what's
2: up? Oh, I remember now, actually. Yes. Um, they, the first doctor I think was a well-meaning family doctor, but she was basically saying that I was overdoing myself. I was just doing too much. Basically, is what I was told. So that kind of went in my brain. well, maybe maybe that is it. Maybe it's basically my fault.
1: Well, so so Carrie, let's talk about that. So you, you bring your you bring your very active daughter in to see a doctor. Largely, what you're concerned about is is fatigue, right? She has fatigue symptoms for the first time in in her very active life, and the doctor suggests that perhaps um, Sam is burning the candle at, at at both ends, and that she needs to. Uh, listen to her body and wrestle a little bit more. What was your reaction to that?
3: Well, my reaction was, um, I was annoyed. Like, um, that's your answer? Like, are you kidding? I know of so many of my daughter's peers, the group that she hangs out with, highly motivated, athletic, intelligent kids. It's not happening to them. So let's not just say that everybody at this age can't handle it. That, that just was a real cop out to me and it rubbed me the wrong way. And I should have known to get used to that phrase because that is what we heard from that point on, like on repeat. But after that first initial doctor's visit, I had hope we got, we got, um, blood work back and what it showed was it showed positive high, um, RA factor. However, there was nothing about Lyme on there, like zip zero, nada. Nothing, but I was like, what does high RA mean? And that began probably the very first question of, I don't know what these numbers are. What does this all mean?
1: Okay, so, but Carrie, so when you say there was nothing about Lyme, was there nothing about Lyme because a Lyme test was not a part of the blood testing that was offered to you? Or there was nothing about Lyme because she, she tested negative on a traditional Lyme test?
3: No, that first initial one didn't have anything about Lyme. I just didn't have anything about Lyme. So we just said, we just trusted them to do a blood panel. And that was just to see where she was. And then we went back a second time, which is when we got the results. And that's when, you know, I said, well, okay, we're going to go to a specialist, which would have been a rheumatologist for these, you know, high rheumatological um, numbers. And I said, well, Hey, could you just give, just let's do a, a Western blot. Let's do a Lyme test. And the doctor said, Well, when do you think she, when did she get a tick bite? I'm like, well, judging on her symptoms, it was probably like, I don't know, mid November maybe. And the doctor looked at me and said, you don't get bitten by ticks then it's not Lyme. And I said, just, can you just humor me and just do the test anyway? And they gave her uh, a prescription for doxycycline um, for her to start, but specifically said, when this comes back negative, stop taking it.
1: Okay, so let's pause there, Carrie, because I, I, I'm, I'm interested in unpacking this whole thing here. So you have a child who's suffering from fatigue. None of her other high-performing friends are, 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 are suffering from these same symptoms, despite engaging in the same level of activity. The doctor says, uh, you know, but that's what it is. She's just, she's just um, not, uh, not, I guess, resting enough you, you reject that, right? Mm -hmm. You now want to look at the blood test. You look at the blood test. You see something that's a little off, but not a whole lot. And you now ask for a Lyme disease test. Why'd you ask for Lyme disease test? And what made you think that?
3: So a friend of ours, um, one of Samantha's good friends from high school, um, he, his mother, he was talking to his mom because they were just good friends. And, you know, yeah, Sam's not doing so well right now, X, Y, and Z. And, This mother said to him, you should tell her to do a Lyme test because she had a friend who had Lyme and had been going through this litany of, you know, doctor's tests, doctor's tests and eventually had Lyme. So the mom just put the bug in his ear. He said something to Sam. And I was like, why the heck not? So we did. That was about how it was.
1: All right. So so there was some bro science here where uh, not a a non-scientific or medical professional says, hey, sounds like Lyme. Why don't you take a Lyme test? Right. So, what was your reaction to that, Sam? When when uh, when a friend said, uh, "Sounds like Lyme disease. Why don't you uh, Why don't you get a Lyme test?" And my mom's recommending to your mom because that's what these moms do that you uh, that you take a Lyme test.
2: I mean, this is a very good friend, and I and I his mom is a good friend too. So I thought, okay, it wouldn't hurt. I yeah, thought sure.
1: So what was your reaction when you first heard Lyme, Sam? I mean, was that something that scared you? Or was that something that you didn't react to? Or was it, you know, what was it? What was your reaction when he said, take a Lyme test?
2: It wasn't scary. I think I knew a friend's dad who had Lyme because he had a bullseye, got antibiotics, was fine. Um, so that's all I thought it really was. Uh, if I had it, I would get antibiotics, be fine, just like strep throat or a sinus infection. So I thought...
1: So Carrie, what was your reaction when Sam came home and said, Hey, you know, one of my friends thinks I should take a Lyme disease test. What was your reaction?
3: I am seeker of whatever I can, I'm, you know, like find out what's wrong. So to me, it was not a big deal. Okay, well, let's just go get it. And I, again, I did not know what Lyme meant. I mean, that was ignorance is bliss at that moment. You know, like what I know of Lyme now, would be like, <gasps> but I don't have those feelings at that time because it doesn't really resonate with me. Again, it was like 15 years prior that my friend was sick and recovered. And in that amount of time, I had known no one else who had had anything with Lyme disease. So it was well out of my radar.
1: So Carrie, what happens next? You, uh, you, you, you now go forward with the Western blot, and what happens after that testing? So she
3: gets a negative test. Uh, but we can't understand why she has a high white blood cell count and she's got this RA factor going on, rheumatological issue going on. Um, so they say, stop taking the doxycycline. She stops taking that happily because she's outside trying to run track and feels like she's on fire, you know, when you take doxy outside in the sun. So we then get scheduled to go to our very first rheumatologist and we go in and we spend a boatload of time and, and leading up to that time. She journaled. She was journaling what her symptoms were because they weren't always the same every single day, but they would at least provide some sort of consistent evidence that something is continuously going on. And I said, "Bring this in. This will be great. Now you're not have to commit it all to memory." So that was our next step: was to go in in front of this rheumatologist.
1: So, Carrie, I want to talk to you about the doxycycline. Um, yeah. How much doxycycline did uh, the doctor prescribe, and for how long did Sam? take the doxy.
3: It was 250 milligrams twice a day for five that she took them for five days. I don't remember what the length of the prescription was. I just know that the, from the time she got the prescription to take it and the time we got the negative test and we're told stop, it was just five days.
1: So Carrie, when you were talking with the doctors about the testing, did, did the doctors ever suggest to you that, even under the CDC guidelines that the testing was only supposed to be one consideration when determining whether or not somebody should be diagnosed with Lyme disease and that perhaps um, this negative test was not uh, definitive and that you may consider keeping your child on the doxycycline for a longer period of time?
3: Not at all, not even remotely. And that, that wasn't just with the primary care provider. That was then when we went to a rheumatologist who gave me a CVS scroll of all the other blood work to be done, um, including, you know, for leukemia? Um, there was not a secondary follow-up Lyme test on that either.
1: Okay, we're we'll gonna get, get there for a second in a second. Let's stay, let's stay with Dr. Number One, Sam. Um, so uh, you're you're an athlete, you're running track, you're given this medication, doxycycline. Um, what did it feel like to take the medication?
2: Oh, I remember I hated it. I, like my mom said, I was in the middle of a track season and that's all that mattered to me at the time pretty much. And I couldn't stand to be in the sun cause it felt like my face was burning off. And I was like, I cannot wait to stop taking this. This sucks. I don't like it.
1: Was, was the doxy causing you to have any stomach issues or did you have any other reaction to the doxy or was it just, uh, just the, um, the reaction that you were getting in the sun?
2: I don't remember. Um, I mean, I was having other symptoms like the nausea and stuff, so I don't know if that was exacerbated by the doxy or something I just already had. But my my, but my worst complaint was the reaction to the sun and the sensitivity.
1: Okay, so Carrie, you now you now take your daughter from this um, primary care physician to another doctor, and actually, before we talk about second, in total, how many different doctors? Did you take Sam to before she was ultimately diagnosed with Lyme disease?
3: Well, I will call her lucky in that it was five.
1: Okay. So let's talk about the next doctor. You 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 go to um, a doctor to deal with uh, with the uh, the um, I guess you said a rheumatologist. What was what was how did you find the rheumatologist and why did you select the particular doctor you did select to take your daughter?
3: So our our care provider said you're going to have to go to a rheumatologist to figure out why you have high RA numbers, why you have a a large, you know, this number here, you must have inflammation in your joints. And that leads us to think you could have juvenile RA, you know, there could be something going on. Do you have arthritis in your family? This, you know, all this stuff. So we then went to this rheumatologist who had, you know, a checklist of all the different things to go over. And I think Samantha, wasn't that like an hour and a half like that whole appointment or don't you remember? It could have been, I don't remember. It was, it was really extraordinarily long in my opinion, but it, it was like nothing. He, his face was buried in his notes and he was just going off a checklist and he was not looking at my child. He's not listening to my child at all. And I'm looking at him and I'm seeing her just being like this, like she never really had to fight for being listened to by a doctor ever in her life. And she's just sort of sitting there like, what the heck? You know, it was just, it was just not even personal.
1: So Carrie, one of the things that um, at least I've seen when I've gone to the doctor with my children is in many cases, they will downplay how they feel. It's almost like, you know, you have to be stoic and 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 it's a part of our culture and we're not supposed to be whiny. Um, Do you think Sam was giving the doctor all the information that a doctor would need to fully assess her when you went to the rheumatologist or was she being this sort of tough, stoic, quiet kid who didn't want to uh, seem whiny and give all the information that maybe the doctor would need?
3: So when she was there, she was definitely more stoic and you know, like a big brave soldier, right? And maybe not as forthcoming. However, knowing that about her is why I had her have this these notes you know, when she's writing down how she's, how she's feeling, literally like, what do you fe- feel like at three o'clock in the afternoon? Cause that's when you feel really crappy and you have a 99 degree temperature for no reason. And, you know, like, so yes, she wasn't exhibiting this strong, I feel terrible. You really got to listen to me. Cause it's not the type of person she is, but she had evidence of this is what's been going on with me. So even if that's how she was acting, she was still providing the fact that she cared a whole heck of a lot, that her body was not working the way it had been working.
1: So Sam, talk to us about your journaling. How'd you start journaling and why'd you start journaling?
2: I started journaling basically to have the evidence for a doctor because I remember I got flustered going to the doctor because then I would get it in my mind, especially from the first appointment that I was overdoing myself. Like, is it just me? Do other people feel the same way? So I would... I wrote down this tiny little notebook that had the date that I just would circle um, and just random a couple little notes. If I had that 99-degree temperature in the middle of the day, that was weird. If I had extraordinary joint pain that day, and I would kind of give each day a score of how I felt-just something simple. So I had that evidence.
1: Well, so you decided to try to develop some evidence so you'd remember what was happening and you wanted to be able to provide that to your doctor.
2: Yeah, exactly. So when
1: you when you went to the rheumatologist, did you prepare a summary of all these symptoms? Did you give it to your mom? I mean, how how did we convey the information that you were developing in your notebook um, or your journal and get that information to the doctor?
2: I think I just brought it. It wasn't anything super formal. It just it was kind of just in case for me, for if I felt like, oh, this isn't as bad as I've been thinking, like, oh no, it's right here in my hand in my hand, I can say on this week I've been feeling like this and I just kind of would, I had it there to go back to if I needed.
1: So Carrie, how much of the information that Sam had developed before you met with the rheumatologist was given to the rheumatologist and who gave it to, it was it a, he, the rheumatologist.
3: Yeah, it it was a male doctor. Um, You know, again, she had it in a notebook and maybe the best thing he could have done was to say, well, let me make a copy of this. So I have some notes, but no, he, he didn't. He just, Kept his head down, did his checklist. And in my opinion, he really blew off and brushed off what she was saying because he ended up repeating what a previous doctor had said. And that is, you know, listen, you're a very high active functioning girl. I think you really need to just relax. I think you're an overachiever and you just need to calm down. (laughs) That's essentially what he said.
1: So Carrie, what was your reaction to doctor number two saying the same thing about your child that doctor number one said?
3: Well, I was disgusted, you know, A, I'm giving you my time, B, I'm giving you my money and C, um, you have children, doc. Is this okay? Do you just spend, you you walk in and spend an hour and a half with someone who's supposed to help you with your child's health. And this is okay. This is what you come out of it. I was furious. I was really furious to the point that when I finally, I saw all the blood work that was supposed to be done when I got her to the lab. And I saw that even though I asked him a few times to do the Lyme test, when I saw that he never even included it on the list of all the things, I was fuming, absolutely fuming.
1: So Carrie, talk to us about the Lyme conversation you had with the rheumatologist.
3: I explained to him that we had been, you know, information had been shared with us about someone else who had had a misdiagnosis. They had very similar symptoms as Samantha. This person was an older adult, but the symptoms were still the same. And that I felt like it was out of place for Samantha to abruptly start feeling this way and that it made sense. She loves to be outside. You know, she was outside playing soccer all fall. She went on a hike with her teammates. You know, there are definitely pieces of evidence that say, okay, what you do in your lifestyle and how active of you are indicate that you could absolutely have been bitten by a tick. So um, yeah, you know, it's just frustrating to me that having a conversation with, with a professional like that, especially someone who listens to people who have joint pain, how it was just completely dismissed was just, it was shocking to me.
1: So Sam, where was your head at that time um, relative to Lyme disease? Were you starting to get the sense that you had Lyme disease and that this rheumatologist was not even considering that? Where, where were you on the Lyme uh, page?
2: I think I had actually kind of accepted that I, I thought I had rheumatoid arthritis for a while, juvenile rheumatoid arthritis for a while. I was like, well, that seems most probable because it came back in the blood work. Um, That's what I talked to my track coaches about. And I was like, well, if the test came back negative, I guess I don't have it. And I was feeling a bit defeated. Like, I guess this is something I'm going to have to deal with, or maybe I do have to calm down and chill and, and not be so active. So it wasn't really on my, my personal radar at that point.
1: Now, Carrie, when you were talking with the rheumatologist about your your daughter's um, symptoms, um, and you were pushing the Lyme conversation, uh, were you were you starting to feel in your gut that perhaps your daughter had Lyme disease?
3: No, no. I think I was just more ticked off that this person would not even allow for just a test. You know, I, I get. I just wanted to turn over every single stone, and I was just. I was just not understanding why he wouldn't just give this one other, this test, you know, I, I still did not have it in my thought that this was Lyme. I, I was not educated enough to know that this was Lyme. I just, just wanted, I just still didn't understand why he wouldn't let her have the test, take the test. But,
1: but Carrie, she, she had already taken a Lyme disease test and she had tested negative for Lyme disease test. So why were you as the mom pushing so hard for another Lyme disease test when she already tested negative?
3: Cause I just, I guess maybe there was my instinct. I don't know that I have the exact answer, but there was just an instinct of, you know, not all tests are correct. The first time I, mean, women take pregnancy tests, they show up as a negative, but Hey, there's a baby. I mean, you know, not a, tests are fallible. And, and I don't, I didn't even know at that time how bad and how archaic the t- the Western blot is, but I still knew enough that I was not convinced that she received the proper test. That the that the it was a correct diagnosis on that end. I I don't know. I I don't have an exact answer for that. And maybe it was a little little intervention telling me I needed to keep picking away at it. I don't know.
1: No, no, I mean mom instinct. That's what I'm that's what I'm really trying to drill in on with you because it sounds to me that uh, I mean, one of the things that's going to happen, of course, not just as parents, but as people generally, is that when we learn about something new. We're going to, you know, and it's on our radar for the first time. It's like, you know, buying the, you know, buying the yellow shirt that no one else had. And then all of a sudden you see the yellow shirt everywhere. Right. I mean, the reticular activation system is now triggered and you're starting to now notice things that you didn't notice before. So Lyme is starting to become something you're learning more about and you're noticing more about, and you're, your you you know, your mom instincts are going off and, and, um, and now you're asking for something. And the answer is no. Well, I'll tell you
3: this too, Rich, I was working um, in my job. And like I said, I was doing a lot of segments with um, medical providers at Penn State Hershey. And anytime I was in front of anyone could have been a foot doctor, it just didn't matter. My mouth was running about my daughter's not well. You know, this is the kind of symptoms like I probably annoyed my crew so completely because any opportunity I had to talk about what was going on with Sam, I took because I felt like somebody around here is going to go, Hey, you know what that could be? Or you could go check and talk to this doctor. And it was interesting because a woman that I worked with had had a very similar situation and she had West Nile virus. So I was still constantly picking away at things that didn't make sense. You know, it was like, I'm trying to solve a mystery here.
1: So Sam, what's the next doctor you go to after you're failed by the rheumatologist?
2: The next doctor I went to was a pediatric, um, the neural, it was the neurologist the neurologist. That's right. Uh, this one was funny to me now, <laughs> uh, but basically I always say the doctors are well-meaning cause I think they are, but she uh, referred me to an eating disorder clinic because I was having the nausea and I felt one treated like a kid, a, a smaller child. I was 16 at the time. Um, Like I just didn't want to eat because like I was a defiant small child. Um, So I guess she thought I had anorexia or an eating disorder disorder or something. And that's all she really saw through. Um, So at that point, that was kind of a laughing matter because I knew that wasn't it. I knew that wasn't it.
1: So Carrie, doctor number three is a neurologist. Uh, Why did you go to a neurologist after the rheumatologist?
3: Because she was also feeling... um, kind of spacey, she said, like, that's when she was starting to feel like focusing was weird. She also would say to me, my hand hurts when I'm holding my pencil, like, I'm achy with my, you know, do you remember that? Do you remember that, Sam, like your hand, it was bothering you when you're holding your pencil. So there were some things that were going on throughout the body that I thought could be neurological issues. She was also having headaches, And, um, you know, again, every month was so full of fun and exciting new symptoms and some would still be with us from the previous month and some were away and there were new ones. And so we went to this doctor and, you know, she basically, she treated us like the rest of them did. Like, I I don't know what to tell you, you know, it's, it's, it's in your head.
1: So, Sam, you're having these migrating symptoms, which of course is common with people who have Lyme disease, right? It's one of the reasons why, um, in many cases, people with Lyme disease are thought to be suffering from mental illness because they have a different symptom every day. Were you telling all of your doctors about the migrating symptoms or were you just telling the specialist about the particular symptoms you are suffering from that were, that were a part of that specialist um, specialty?
2: I believe I was telling them all of the symptoms. I mean, I would start with like, yeah, this. these are the symptoms that you should be looking at because it's your specialty, but also these are going on and I don't know if they're connected because I truly believe I was interested in medicine. The human body is connected and I could see that from a lower education standpoint. Um, so I was forthcoming with, yeah, I have all these things. This is what I came to you for, but there's also this. So how can you help me please? <laughs>
1: So Sam, talk to us about how you felt when you were seeing all these doctors. Like, You wanted to be a doctor yourself. This was an opportunity to go on a number of different field trips to meet with other professionals who were, who were practicing in the area where you were going to practice. How did you start to feel about this profession that you wanted to enter?
2: I had so much faith in doctors. I wanted to be one, and I thought they had all of the answers. I really did. I had so much faith. Um, and honestly, at that time, I didn't want to think I was sick I was kind of in denial like no I can still do this I, I I'm not that sick we're going to figure this out but I'm still living my life
1: right and of course you were you you wanted answers uh about you, you wanted to be healthy you wanted to be the young athlete that you had before you wanted to continue to be successful when, so when doctors are telling you you're fine you're happy to be told you're fine right right yeah So Carrie, tell me about, uh, you know, the mom's perspective, right? Your, your, your daughter has these migrating symptoms. She's the, you know, she's the always healthy, always energetic, always, um, you know, capable kid. And you're going from now one doctor to another doctor to another doctor, and you're not getting any answers. So what is this like from a parent's perspective?
3: Super frustrating. I mean, and I was losing my filter with each doctor, um, when that particular doctor's office called to say, We want to schedule your daughter with an adolescent eating disorder clinic, I said, Take her files and put them in the trash and don't ever call me again. I, it was just that simple. Like, shame on you that you're going to put upon something as serious as that so quickly and swiftly. You didn't hear my kid at all. I was livid about it. And I grew much more frustrated that I was not as a parent finding the answers for my child. I mean, like that's what we do as parents. We fix, we solve, we put the bandaid on, kiss the boo-boo and we move on. And I'm now in a place where I feel really alone in trying to find answers for my child's crazy, weird symptoms and up and down illness.
1: So, Carrie, how is your relationship with Sam? Um, you know, Sam wants to be fine. She wants to go back to living this rich life that she was living, and you're not so sure that she's, you know, she's wise to do that. How is how is your relationship uh, with Sam?
3: I trust Sam, and I always trusted that she was doing the best she could at the time for her body and herself. If she told me I need to sleep in this morning, I'm exhausted. I trusted that that was going to be okay. I trusted her when she was in mid pen track and she's like, I'm going to run, you know, I'm going to do the hurdles and I'm going to do the triple jump and I'm going to do the long jump. And I just go, okay. But then I also was there when she was losing it, physically couldn't handle it and feeling like she's letting herself down and her team down. And I just look at her and I go, we're going to be okay. Like, you know, I love you. We're good. It's fine. But I have a lot of respect for sam you know as a as a mother-child relationship
1: how are your other daughters reacting to you having to invest so much time and energy into sam's health
3: you know that didn't show up till later because you know either i'm in it and oblivious to it and don't have time to see that they need extra support you know it's pulling mom away um Yeah. I mean, that's probably what it was. I I just had kind of blinders on. I mean, so Sam's sister uh, closest in age to her is, um, 22 months younger. And then the next one down is six years. Right. So the baby, the family was really, she was fine. She didn't really get it. She didn't see it, but it was really her sister, you know, that was really close in age to her, two years younger in school who was, um, You know, at times struggling with the fact that I had put a lot of attention on Sam and a lot of conversation with even other people was about how is Sam doing? Do you guys know what's going on yet? Or conversations with my husband, Sam's dad, you know, the kid's dad saying, what are we going to do? I'm so frustrated. Yeah. I think it was hard on my kids for sure, but it really didn't rear its head for a little while after that. I don't know if the kids were patient. (laughs) waiting for things to die down or what. But um, it, it didn't, um, it didn't catch on right away that they were really struggling with what was happening.
1: How are Sam's friends and teammates dealing with Sam's developing symptoms, especially since she started to perform at a, I guess, a less successful rate uh, athletically?
3: It was tough because they really, we, first of all, we didn't know what to say what was going on. And I only trusted a few of, The parents that I, you know, that we kind of all grew up together. I only trusted a few of them to to let them know what was going on because, again, I didn't really know what was going on, and so I was not interested in retelling the story of what was going on with my child constantly. I just, I just kept saying, you know, we're not sure something's going on. We're trying to figure it out, and I think for the most part, her teammates. Didn't say much to her at all, unless she spoke of it. And Sam is a much more reserved person, and so she didn't really say anything about. I don't think she even spoke to her friends much about what was going on, unless it was her um, closest friends. You know, that was it.
1: All right, so Sam, uh, you now have um, you now have a doctor who is essentially suggesting that you're mentally ill, uh, that you need to um, you need to deal with a potential eating disorder, did that cause you to lose any confidence in in yourself?
2: Um, That particular doctor, no. Uh, I honestly was just like, yeah, she doesn't understand me. That one didn't work. Move on. It was the next doctor that really got to me, actually. Um, I think we went to see another rheumatologist, and she basically suggested that I go to a pain camp for uh, young people a juvenile pain camp. Uh, And that was something that kind of broke me a little bit thinking that at 16 years old, I just had chronic pain that I was going to have to deal with.
1: So Carrie, um, what was your reaction as a mom to a Mm -hmm. rheumatologist telling your 16 year old daughter that she needed to go to pain camp?
3: Well, as I've suggested to you before, that as these doctors keep saying these things, I lose my filter. So I was pretty ripped off and mad. And I just looked at her and I immediately lost respect for her. I wanted to punch her in the throat, if I'm going to be honest. <laughs> um, and she handed Sam a pamphlet, you know, like here, here go to the girl scout camp this summer. Kind of was so the way she did. It was so like, not a big deal. She hands her this pamphlet and Sam's sitting there in the end of that examining bed. And I just take it out of Sam's hand and I handed it back to her. And I said, she could teach pain management at this point. And with that, we left. Samantha might've been slightly mortified because I was losing my pleasantry, but that was when she says that was when she broke she walked out as we were literally crossing the threshold, leaving that facility. She was in tears. That's the first time she left a doctor's office in tears. And I said to her, you can cry. You have every right to cry. I'm still on this. You are allowed to be sad and, and feel weakness at the moment. I got you. I'm gonna get, we're going to get to the bottom of this. It's going to be okay.
1: So Sam, you had a lot going on at that time. And I did ask your mom before we got to this next doctor and I, and I neglected to ask you um, how are things going with you and your siblings? Were any of your siblings beginning to suggest that, you know, perhaps you were taking too much time and energy um, and money from, from the family and how are your friends and and fellow teammates uh, reacting to your declining performance in athletics?
2: So, my sisters, um, I can think of one in particular, my immediate younger sister, we're best friends now, but she was not always believing me. Um and she was a bit insecure about how much time and energy I was taking up when within the family. Um so she felt a little bit slighted and that caused uh kind of some distance with us. Uh we we didn't get along that much growing up, so I think she um uh, that was really tough to not be believed or to be shoved aside that I was getting special treatment and things like that from my sister. Um, But my teammates and my friends were at that point, really nice. Um, My coaches and my teammates were so accommodating and they knew how much work I had put in to be at that stage of the athletics. And when I was in my senior year of high school, I, I just loved my teams and they let me participate as much as I could. They celebrated as much as I could I remember when I played soccer they I would start and when I scored a goal it would take me off to rest and all I had to do was put my hand up and my coach would take me out um and if I wanted to be in he would put me in so my teammates and my friends were really awesome um, I didn't always share everything with my friends because I didn't really understand exactly what I was going through but my closest circle uh, even though they didn't understand either they were definitely there for me
1: so Carrie, you've now been through four doctors uh, and uh, the filter is beginning to drop. Uh, the hands are getting ready to be thrown and we're, we're looking at getting ready to punch people in the throats. Um, where, uh, where are we now? Um,
3: so now we have actually gone back to listen to the friend of hers. The mother once again says... My friend's doctor that helped her get her Lyme dose, uh, diagnosis was so-and-so call this friend. So I've now gone back to listen to that mom and I've really paid attention now and said, what's a Lyme? She said, a Lyme doctor. And I'm like, what's a Lyme doctor? And she said, this is someone who really specializes in Lyme disease and people who've been you know, bitten by ticks. And so the one that I called, but we never went to see because I was able to get into a different, closer doctor's office. The one that I called um, was wonderful and immediately sent this checklist for Sam to go over. Um, I don't know. It was not at the time what we know of as the Horowitz checklist. Um, It was not at the time. This is pre Horowitz checklist. Uh, but, But just looking at the checklist was eye-opening because it literally had every single thing that Samantha had been experiencing. Um, I then found out talking to this woman's friend, get this, lived in my neighborhood about five houses away. I had no idea. I literally could walk to her house. And I said to her, where do you go? And she told me, again, this doctor, seven minutes away from our home. Amazing, amazing practice. I called them and we were really lucky to be able to get in, to get some preliminarily, you know, like other blood work, answer some questions. Um, So again, we were able to go from this horrible experience with the second rheumatologist and get in then with someone who at least understood how we can further explore testing for
2: Lyme disease.
1: So Sam, how was this line literate doctor different than all the doctors you had seen before?
2: She was a specialist in a different way, not in a part of the body, but in a way a disease affects the body. And she, knows, she knew so many other things. Um, so she was so much more holistic and listened to all my symptoms. Um, and she treated me as a whole organism, not as a body part.
1: So Carrie, um, when you discovered that someone had chronic Lyme disease five houses away from you and that there was a Lyme literate medical doctor seven minutes away from you. How did that make you feel about Lyme disease and your community's failure to alert parents and children to the threats in your community?
3: So understand, I still did not completely appreciate and understand the level of Illness that Samantha had from this tick bite, right? So that question could be answered even later when I became more educated, you know, uh, with a couple of doctors' visits. But if
1: no, but say, let's say with this, Carrie. Because yeah. look, if 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 you're doors away from somebody who's chronically ill, and there's a doctor that specializes in this disease, even if, even though you don't know a whole lot at that point, you have to think wow, there's got to be something bad going on here in our community if we have a specialist and one of my neighbors has it.
3: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I was just, I was astounded because, you know, for me, I, like I said, I was constantly running my mouth about my kids not, you know, feeling well and things aren't going on. So when I know information, when I now am armed with information, I'm squawk box. I'm going to tell you, everything. And I thought, how do I not know these things? Like, how's this not disseminated information? I don't understand. And that practice that I drove past ad nauseam to take Samantha to soccer practice, literally across the street from soccer, when this girl was sick, I had no idea what functional and integrative medicine meant. And that that is where the holy grail of getting well for my child existed. And, and I thought to myself, someone needs to alert people of, of these other types of providers. So yeah, I mean, I was just, I was very shocked that um, people so close to me, providers so close to me, and yet I had still had zero awareness.
1: Right, so Karen, before Matt takes you through the diagnostic journey, I, 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 I wanna ask you one more question. As a, as a media professional who is responsible for educating her community, how is it that you folks in the media in a tick endemic community, we're not aware of this disease and we're not performing your, your educational responsibility for your community?
3: Well, that's a good question. And here's the thing the moment that I knew what was going on with her and I could do so, I devoted a half hour show, first ever half hour show called TikTok, and it had never been done. And my colleagues did stories on Sam. Um, they right after her diagnosis and they were so thrilled to know what was going on, thinking that things were going to turn around super slick and fast. Um, they immediately, you know, came to our house and they interviewed her because they were like, wait a minute, what your kid, I mean, a kid who's shown up in the newspaper being on the front of, you know, like scoring a goal, your kid was this sick and you had no idea and you didn't get doctors to help. So because of who I was and the type of work I was doing. I immediately saw that that hadn't been spoken about enough and I immediately changed that. So, yeah, I was like, why don't I know all of this? Yeah,
1: and, I, and I think that's awesome. And I, and, I, and I think it's a real blessing to um, you know, your community that someone with a voice and, and the, the platform that you had now wanted to inform the community of this threat. But I'm just, I'm just surprised that the threat was not something that you all were aware of before. And, and part of this may be, you know, having grown up in a tick endemic community myself, um, in the 70s and in the 80s, our local news media was constantly covering this. And one of the reasons why I was so tick-aware, even during my childhood, is because my mother would read the local newspaper. She'd be alerted to these threats and she was constantly conveying this information to the three of us, me, my brother and my sister. And we actually had a janky ticket on in, in our house with Vaseline, a um, tweezers and, um, and and matches in part to take ticks off of our animals, which was almost a daily thing. But also to take ticks off of us. And we're talking about you know, I'm an old man. This is when I was younger than Sam. So it's weird to me that, you know, at least the Long Island media was so aware of this problem, but, you know, you know, a two hour or three hour drive away, the folks in your media uh, were not aware of this and were not conveying this education to the community.
3: It was not on radar. And there was a young woman who had been extremely debilitated that I ended up finding out about I mean, she lost her eyesight. She had to have her el- her joints and her elbows and her knees and her wrists like all over replaced. Um, she's Sam's age. She's maybe two years older than Sam. And this is when she was like in middle school and on. She wasn't even present. Like they didn't even talk about what was going on with her a lot. There was no awareness building, absolutely nothing. It just didn't, there, there, we, did ha- we do have, a wonderful organization called PA Lime. And they do um now they do this tick-aware educational component and they do a lot of stuff legislatively and they have these small support groups. But even so, I was never even learned of this group. I was never even told about this group. I had no idea that it existed.
0: So, Sam, I want to focus a little bit more on your diagnosis and the short time before that, because for your perspective here for our listeners you were just turning 16 when you got sick and you were almost 17 when you got diagnosed and you went through about five or six doctors before you get your diagnosis, but your, your health declined pretty quickly, right? You were told it's in your head. You were told it's rheumatoid, it's RA. You were told you need to go to a chronic pain camp. Did you believe you were truly sick or did you ever have doubts that possibly it was a mental health illness?
2: Oh, I definitely had doubts. Um, I think in my gut, I knew something was sick, but in my brain, there was a little voice that was like, hey, maybe you are being dramatic. Maybe other kids are going through this. Maybe it's not as bad as you think. Um, And I attribute a lot of the fight at that time to my mom because she believed in me and the symptoms more than I did sometimes because I could be very quick to say, well, maybe it's just this or maybe it's just that.
0: And Sam, again, the, the symptoms that you had were pretty diverse, and they weren't related to one particular specialty, as Rich noted. I mean, you had chronic pain, you had arthritis, you had fatigue, you had neurological symptoms, you felt spacey, you felt confused, you felt like you had a difficulty processing information. So they were all over the charts. Do you think that contributed to your potential doubt that it was a real physical illness because it was all over the place with your symptoms?
2: Yeah, for sure. And they, and they would change every day, so it felt like I was being gaslit by my own body. Like I would believe my body that it was feeling terrible, I would have terrible joint pain and swelling. And then the next day, it wouldn't hurt as much and the swelling would go away. So it, it was weird.
0: And Sam, was there anything that you did during this one year window before your diagnosis that helped you, even though you didn't know what was going on and what the root cause was?
2: I can't really think of a specific thing other than trying to live. I don't know if it helped me because I maybe have Maybe push myself too hard, but staying active, kind of right in retrospect, I think that did help a bit. It might have hurt and it might have helped um, to keep my body moving at some point. That's the only thing I could
0: think of. It was part of the reason that you were journaling, do you think, looking back, because you wanted to validate that you were physically sick in your own mind? Because it's rare to hear somebody journaling their symptoms so early on. And I think it was great that you did. And it's an important part of the healing journey to document what's going on so you can make informed decisions in your diagnosis journey. But why did you do that? Because most people don't. Do you think it was for your own mental health to say, I am really sick and and to overcome those doubts that you were having?
2: Uh, That is actually something that really definitely helps now that I think of it. Uh, But I don't don't know because it wasn't really something that I felt super strongly about. It just felt like I, I think my mom suggested it probably it was half for the evidence for the doctors to say, Hey, this is what's going on. So I didn't have, I didn't really have the option to retreat into myself and be like, well, maybe it's not that bad, but it did validate myself mentally. Like, yeah, I, I have this log of illness and it's real.
0: So I'm going to put over to your pivot over to your mom now, Sam and, and ask Carrie, did you ever doubt? I mean, I know you were the rock and I know to Sam, you were 100% on board. This is real. We're going to figure it out. But in the back of your mind, Carrie, did you ever doubt that your daughter was really sick?
3: Oh, I never doubted her. There was not a moment, not a, not a moment ever that I doubted her. Um, I knew her so well and she had no reason to feign illness. That wasn't her personality. You know, times get tough. She's the kind of kid that digs in deeper, harder, more challenged, bring it on. So, no, it was absolutely not. And Sam pushed through so much. I watched her push through so much, physically watching her trying to run to get a ball and watching her feet stop moving in the way that they used to. Like, I knew that everything that was going on with her was absolutely happening to her body. And if anything, I'm the one that kept all those symptoms alive, and she's the one that would deaden them just to help her get through. Does that make sense?
0: It does. No, it absolutely does. You almost explained them away. And I think you, I think, Sam, you said it earlier, you didn't want to believe you were sick because you were so young. And I think that's what you're saying, Carrie. Your daughter didn't want to believe she was sick, but you had to keep them alive to get a diagnosis. Otherwise, this one-year journey could have been decades, I think is what you're saying, Carrie.
3: Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I we did not have time for her to be going downhill as rapidly as she was. And it was rapid. And I mean, I, I just, I couldn't believe it. Like it was just, it was terrifying as a parent.
0: So let's talk about this fifth doctor who it was seven minutes away and you drove past every single day. Are you comfortable sharing this doctor's name for our listeners?
3: Yeah. So we started um, at Turnpal health and wellness um, amazing practice. And the first provider that Samantha saw was a DO named um, Dr. Regina Smith.
0: So, Sam, when you went to Dr. Regina Smith, and now Lyme was back on the table, did you start to realize, wow, maybe I am really sick. And maybe this is real. And maybe all those other doctors were just not properly equipped to help me.
2: Yeah, I did. And I think the most impressionable thing was leaving that first appointment with, you know, a list of blood work and, and avenues, but her being so transparent in maybe we don't know exactly what's going on. We'll, we'll try to find the answer, but no matter what, I want to get you well. And that was the first time that I had really heard that from a doctor to be like, not just throw a blank diagnosis or a just suck it up, feel better thing. It was like, no, we're, we're going to get you better.
0: And Carrie, did you walk away again? And I loved your analogy earlier with Rich that you walked away with your horrible rheumatologist with a CVS scroll of blood work, because I think we're going to relate to going to CVS and getting our receipt and having it being like 40 miles long with all these coupons <laughs> and codes on them. So did you walk away, Carrie, again, with a whole slew of tests for Sam to get when you saw Dr. Regina Smith at the Paul Health Clinic? She actually
3: said we should go through Igenix. That was where, you know, they were pushing um, TBI folks, that's where they were pushing it. And she explained what it was. She explained, you know, the levels of diagnostics that you could get from that. This is what the cost level is for this, that, and the other. And, you know, I, I, we just said, we're going to do all of it. So I think they had to order the test in. Um, and then we were going to go to the phlebotomist to get all of these 18 vials or whatever the heck it was, you know, pulled to be able to send it off to hygienics.
0: Carrie, was it just Lyme you were testing for or was it also looking for co-infections as well through the hygienic testing?
3: She mentioned co-infections and I was like, say what? What are the, like, what are those? That was my first um, introduction to co-infections and ironically at the time um, between hygienics not kind of being there yet and Sam not really presenting the babesia that she later was diagnosed with, we actually didn't come back with a result of um, any other testing that was just Lyme and it was two strains of Lyme.
0: So it's really interesting about the two strains of Lyme because we've been talking a lot about this. We recently interviewed actually Studi who is a, from Igenics and she talked to us about the different strains of Lyme and how we can have a European strain versus an American strain and there's different subspecies and things like that. So when you learned that your daughter had two strains of Lyme, did the clinic explain to you what that meant and how that possibly happened?
3: No, we, we really didn't get any understanding of what that was. Um, I, I still don't know to this day. <laughs> I'm not sure. I just know that she had two strains of Lyme.
0: So Sam, talk to us about now this first appointment. So it sounds like obviously your mom explained to us that you had hygienic testing. It came back. You know, you had two strains of Lyme. Were you walking away with any treatment in mind or were you waiting for the results before developing a treatment plan with your new doctor?
2: I'm pretty sure we're uh, waiting the results first. Yeah.
0: And when you got the results, Sam, was it just the Lyme, the two strains of Lyme, or did you know at this point that you had Babesia as well?
2: At that point, it was just the two strains of Lyme.
0: And what was the first course of action? So now you realize I have Lyme disease and I need to treat it. And you're with somebody who thankfully specializes and understands how severe Lyme and t illness can be. What was the first treatment protocol you walked away with after that diagnosis?
2: The first treatment protocol was antibiotics. I believe it was a mix of two antibiotics at that point. Um, and I thought, "This is amazing! What a sigh of relief! I'm going to take these antibiotics, and I will be, I will be good as new as soon as, as soon as possible."
0: So you felt validated, number one, that you had a real mm-hmm. illness, and hopefully, did all of your doubts leave at this point, Sam? Did you now know definitively that you had a real physical root cause to your symptoms?
2: Yeah. Yeah, my doubts disappeared and I was like, it was almost like tunnel vision, like this is what I have. Finally a diagnosis. I'm so relieved. This is what we're gonna do. Awesome.
0: And did Dr. Regina Smith warn you that treatment may not be so easy, especially considering you had it for almost a year and you declined so quickly and were so sick at this point?
2: I don't remember her really explaining that. Um, I don't think she was like these antibiotics are the holy grail. If you take them, you'll get better, but it was definitely the first course of action and there was a lot of hope.
0: So now these two antibiotics, do you recall, Sam, what they were? Or if you don't carry, do you recall what those two antibiotics were?
3: Uh, I want to say it was um, doxycycline and maybe ceftin um, I think amoxicillin was early on, no? Well, you had, you would go in, um, I think it was like every six weeks, and we would sort of reassess depending upon level of symptoms. Um, you know, I, I was just looking behind me. I know I had had my... my full condensed (laughs) folder, but I will say that, um, what I thought was really interesting was how she described, you need multi-level antibiotics and describe that. It's not just, um, you know, what's going to pick up the spirochete in the bloodstream, but it's intracellular and, you know, a biofilm busting. and, And that was actually a very new talked about concept at the time. And so, um, Originally, she started on two antibiotics, and then they added another one and sort of pulsed it in. But during her time with Regina in the practice, she tried multiple different types of antibiotics um, and also supplements. That was the best course of treatment at the time for her.
0: So, Carrie, talk to us a little bit more about that because I think when we hear about Lyme disease, and especially if people are new to Lyme disease and listening to this podcast. We think of this as a bacterial infection, which is a spirochete like syphilis. that's in your bloodstream, and it must be attacked and killed for, for us to get better. But I think there are certain pieces about Lyme disease that we don't realize until we get deep into the Lyme world. And you hit on that, many of them, pretty much most of them. So the fact that if it's, it's intracellular and that biofilm have complications for it as well, and it's not just in your bloodstream. Can you just expand upon that a little bit and explain to us what the doctor explained to you and what you now understand that to be?
3: Yeah. So what they explained it as, um, is sort of like the spirochete is going to react to the doxycycline and it might go hide into the wall. You know, it takes its little corkscrew and it hides into the walls. It's kind of like the army that's out and they're all in their fatigues and they hear somebody and they go, shh, get down. Right. And they go and hide. So that introduction to doxycycline is going to pick up some of those spirochetes that are still swimming through the bloodstream but the others that got smart, they went and hid. So then you need the next level of the antibiotic to come in and that's going to go in and permeate in the cell wall. It's going to do something different. It's going to kill those off there. So, and then of course, the biofilm buster would be, you know, the spirochetes that had their little force field around them to protect them. So I look at it as the antibiotics being a form of an army And the way in which who they're attacking, which would be the spirochetes, how they react, you know, and it's the same that when she'd go off certain antibiotics, the spirochetes, you know, she'd have a spike in symptoms because the spirochetes that were still alive would come back out again, they were sort of hiding in dormant, and they would kind of rear their head just like the soldier who is lying flat in the ground, until you know. His lieutenant, they say, OK, lieutenants, you can get back up. They all get back up again. You didn't realize there was still a whole lot in the army that was left that you got to fight. So I don't know if that analogy helps. It always helped me.
0: No, I think it's, Carrie. I think it's brilliant. And in my mind, I'm, I'm imagining war and different antibiotics one of them being an air raid another one being a ground a invasion another one being right cyber warfare another one being a you know busting up a an underground fortress right and all these antibiotics you're doing different things in the war and that's how you're going to get all of your enemies out of uh, of that area right and that, that's a really powerful analogy but you did also mention that when when sam was going through this treatment the symptoms would spike because you know activating these things you're killing them off and then of course you have toxins as you kill the bacteria so sam talk to us about how you felt when you first started treatment with all these antibiotics
2: i i felt mentally very hopeful um, but as the treatment progressed i would get a step better and then two steps worse i would get rid of one symptom or one would lessen and then two new ones would pop up or more would pop up and it was really confusing to me um because then i would go in okay we're going to change it up more hope and then there were there was improvement and then there was you know, going backwards, uh, we would change it again and change it again. And I had so many different cocktails of antibiotics. We did herbal tinctures. I did so many supplements and all these things. And and it was just kind of a roller coaster of of the symptoms varying then, and also the treatment.
0: So, how long were you on these antibiotics and herbal tinctures for before you decided to make a change in your treatment plan?
2: A year and a half.
0: And you recall. Beyond the antibiotics, we talked about, obviously, you were changing them pretty quickly. You're doing combination therapy, as your mom described. Do you recall, Sam, any of the specific herbs or tinctures or supplements you were taking?
2: There, was, there were so many, and they were changing often, and and I don't remember. I didn't like them. A lot of them tasted terrible, and I I hated the whole experience. <laughs> well, I
3: remember we, we already knew that being on the antibiotics for Lyme didn't seem to be doing much. She was experiencing, she. Had, so let me just say that she also was clinically diagnosed before blood work showed. She was clinically diagnosed with Babesia. They didn't have a definitive blood test they felt confident in, but because of the way she had a clinical presentation, they wanted to treat her. So we added antibiotics that were treating the Babesia and those symptoms started to slowly go away. But the symptoms of Lyme, We're not really. So there was a time, I want to say, so we're now in her senior year of high school, um, towards the end of her senior year that we went off all of the antibiotics and she did the Cowden protocol. So she was doing all of these antimicrobials and the tinctures and we were trying to do it that way. And that was a hot mess. (laughs)
0: So Carrie, talk to us about the Cowden protocol, because we've had a lot of people talk about it on this podcast. And the one thing we hear overwhelmingly is it's a very difficult protocol to follow because it involves so many different things throughout the day, from, from tinctures to herbal capsules to herbal teas that you forget it becomes overwhelming. And it's, it's very hard to be consistent and continue on with it. So did you find that to be the case as well?
3: Well, she just did the tinctures. We didn't do the other stuff. It was sort of in the beginning phases of what this protocol was like. And it was really just to replace not having, um, taking all of these antibiotics. And she was on like 3000 milligrams of antibiotics. I mean, her stomach was getting ripped up. And even the doctor was like, I don't think this is really going to do the trick. And also she was going into going to be going into college. And I did not want her taking a boatload of all these antibiotics. They were trying to figure out something else. So yeah, this was a bit unmanageable. And the other thing that happened was we had gone on vacation. And during that time, the stress on her body going off of the antibiotics, going on this protocol, she ended up getting three strains of strep. Three, like it was ridiculous.
0: Dan, talk to us about that. So when you went on the Calderon Protocol after the antibiotics, what was that like for you? Did you feel any better or any worse? Or, you know, what was going on with you physically at that point?
2: I think that's when I started to get into the thick of it and and the beginning stages of kind of a zombie mode um, that I, I remember. And I was just kind of like, I'll try it. I'll try it. I'll try it. And I got, I remember getting super sick. And I was like, that was an epic fail. My body just felt like I had absolutely no defenses. Like I could just get sick like that. And, uh, and of course most of the other symptoms were still there. Tiredness, fatigue, uh, joint pain. It was just getting worse
3: when you had chest pain too. So we were concerned that she was having issues, heart issues.
0: So do you believe that that was Lyme carditis, Carrie?
3: No, well, we thought it was Lyme carditis, but what it was, was the joints across her breastbone were also severely inflamed. Uh, the day of her senior prom, she went to a, a juvenile cardiologist and they ran a massive blood, you know, a massive workup of her heart, everything, stress test, you name it. And he determined with all of, you know, the um, data in front of him that she had just severe inflammation across the joints in her chest um, that was a crazy day because I took her from there to get her hair done and her makeup done and she went to prom and we had lined up through one of our neighbors who was an ER physician that if she needed to have a port put in that if it was determined that she had um, uh, issues that right after prom that's where she was going to the ER and she was going to have that taken care of that night. It's so crazy.
0: When you say a port put in, you mean a port for IV antibiotics because you thought yes. it was Lyme carditis? Correct. Okay. So Sam, I, I mean, is it fair to say that you were worse off after the antibiotics when you began the counting protocol than you were when you started the antibiotics?
2: Yeah, it is fair to say that. And even at the end of the year and a half of the antibiotics, they went off them for a reason and I was worse off then than when I started, yeah.
0: So do you think the Cowden Protocol wasn't a success because you were just so compromised and weak? Or do you think it actually made your body even weaker from being on the Cowden Protocol and using all these antimicrobial herbs and your body couldn't handle it?
2: I think it was a lot of variables, but but mostly just my body just wasn't responding to it. I don't think it was the Cowden Protocol. I just think we hadn't found a way to support my body's natural fighting systems, we were kind of killing everything. There was so much warfare and not as much nurturing.
0: So no support, no detox support, no mitochondria support, no lymphatic massages, no, nothing, no liver support, right? No, nothing like that was being expressed to you to do.
2: Not yet, but not enough. Yeah.
0: Okay. So you think you were just killing, killing, killing the bat, Lyme bacteria, probably other opportunistic viruses, bacteria, pathogens, parasites, you name it, right? And all mm-hmm. that die off is creating an extremely toxic environment, which is resulting in inflammation as your mom described is really was the root cause of all of your chest pain because of inflammation in your breast, around your breastbone, basically. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So how long were you on the pro- count protocol for, before you realized that wasn't working as well?
3: I think it was maybe two months.
2: Yeah.
0: So, I mean, at this point, walk us through your emotions, Sam, because you were on about in about, about a year and a half and you were worse. You're about to go into college, you're now doing something natural because you realize you can't sustain antibiotics for life. And now the natural stuff isn't working. I mean, where are you at emotionally? Now you're treating with a Lyme specialist, and you're not getting better, you're getting worse. I mean, that had to be very difficult. And I think many of us listening have been there. And we feel like, you know what, there's no hope we can't get better. Were you at that point in your journey just at this time?
2: Yeah, I mean, after the Cowden protocol, I actually went back on the antibiotics. And then at that point I was, I had just finished my first semester uh, of college and I had a handicap pass because I could no longer walk to classes. I was like taking breaks, collapsing, I was missing classes and I wasn't, couldn't think straight. I was not the student I was before. And I came home for that winter break and I was sleeping like at least 16 hours a day. I was a full shell zombie of a human. And that's when I was really desperate to do something and there was no longer any will to fight past it to pretend like I wasn't sick because that's what I had been doing I had been you know taking the treatment seriously but I mentally was like I'm not that sick I'm gonna get past this pushing it aside and at that point that winter break I took it seriously finally and decided to not go back to college.
0: Tim, give us an idea of how severe your symptoms were and what those new symptoms were that you were experiencing, because you said you had to get a handicap pass, walking was difficult, you know, school was difficult, so clearly you were neurologically and cognitively impaired. If you can, just give us some detail about what your symptoms were and how bad they were, because a lot of people, I think, sometimes I listen to this podcast feel like that maybe they, our guests don't relate when they really can. So I just want to, I know it may be hard and difficult, but if you could just share those for us, please.
2: Yeah, um, I think honestly, I'm a bit luckier than a lot of the stories that I have now heard, but it was really severe at the time. I had so much joint pain. It's like a pain to the bone that you just can't get rid of. Like it's so deep. And the tiredness is so deep. I I bought a shower chair and that's, I remember journaling at that time. And I was just laughing because I was at the point that I needed a chair in the shower. It took so much energy to stand to do that. And then, um, I got the handicap pass so I could drive to classes, but my brain was so foggy that I wasn't like computing the the traffic lights. And I ran through a red light and that was so terrifying. I was getting lost in my own neighborhood that I lived in for years. And that was when it was really scary that uh, I was losing the mental sharpness. I was 18 years old at that point. I That's not how I should experience life. Um, so I was really just a shell of, pain and confusion and along with all the other random symptoms.
0: Well, Sam, that is really bad. I know, I know we all sometimes say we're lucky, but I mean, that was a really horrible time in your life. I mean, you're 18 years old, you're getting lost in the neighborhood you grew up in, you're running red lights. I mean, you're in chronic pain and you've lost all hope, right? So I think that's the position you're in right now. And And I don't mean to stress that to make you feel bad. I want to stress that because you're, better now. And you're amazing now. So I want to set the stage for what Rich is going to get to shortly, which is your healing and your transformation, which is so beautiful. So I want people to know that are listening. There is hope. I mean, you literally were running red lights. You couldn't process red and green. You couldn't process a neighborhood you grew up in your entire life and you'd lost all hope, right? So people listening, please do not give up. There is hope. So Sam, talk to us about, because you did. You said something that really stuck out for me as well, you know, we've been studying a lot about mindset here at Tickwood Cambridge and I, and you mentioned when you had to use a shower chair that when you were journaling about it, you laughed, which I found very surprising because most people when they have to use a shower chair would probably cry or probably get stuck in their bed and, and be in a depression, which frankly I would have done, right? So what made you laugh about it and find humor rather than depression and tears and just being bed bound and giving up in life?
2: Well, there was a lot of depression and tears. So get me wrong. That was definitely a strong part of it. But there was just this little cloud of like, seriously, it was just, it's comical how absurd it was that I was 18 years old using a shower, shower chair. And that's what made me just laugh. Like there was nothing else I could think of it. It it had passed the deep sadness into the humor of like, wow, this is, this is where I'm at. Yeah. And it also created a bottom. I think that was a, a bottom for me to go up. And I was really hopeful that that was my rock bottom. And it was.
0: So Carrie, talk to us about this as well. Now, your daughter's home from college. She's at her worst. I mean, cognitively, she's really declined significantly, as Sam just described. She's using a shower chair, right? She's that sick. How did this make you feel? And I'm sure knowing you, Carrie, it motivated you even more to say, you know what? We're not giving up. I'm going to find another solution. And there's, there's an answer out there.
3: Well, when she ordered the shower chair, it came up on my Amazon account. And I was like, who hacked my account? And I said, oh, my gosh, somebody hacked my account and ordered a shower chair. And she goes, I ordered the shower chair. (laughs) (laughs) Actually didn't believe that it happened. Um, So we are now, you know, we're still in the same practice. But I'm looking at our doctor and I'm like, you know, I think we need some more help. One of the other things that was going on with Sam is she had a pocket of fluid at the base Like the small of her back, like you could pop, you could take your hand and kind of put your hand around the fluid. And she was aching so bad in her hips and her joints. So within that practice is a group of phenomenal chiropractors. And so I said to this doctor, Hey, if you don't mind, the next visit, we're going to move over. I'm taking her off all these antibiotics. Okay, this is not working. I want to move her over and I want to have her start getting adjusted. I can't understand why she has these pockets of fluid everywhere. And maybe this is going to start help breaking some stuff up a bit with her body. And so we moved over to this other doctor. Um, We had resigned ourselves to the fact that she was not going to go back to Penn State that semester in terms of in school, in person class. She was going to do World Campus. So knowing that she had, we we took that off the table. Now we could hyper focus. Moving to this other chiropractor, thinking we were just going to do adjustments and figure out another game plan, um, was actually the most cathartic move because, again, he not only listened to us, but he said. I know Dr. Regina has done the best that she can do, but if you don't mind, let me take a stab at this. And he brought in Chris Turnpaul, who is the um, founder of the practice, who is a, an amazing, brilliant person. And these two um, just created a game plan and looked at Sam, and she'll explain this and said, This is what we're going to do. Are you game? She's like, I'm game.
0: I do want to stop you though because I cannot but wonder you were treating with, I believe it was Dr. Regina Smith at the same clinic, right? There's a lot of doctors there. Yeah. And it sounds like this was going on for almost two years now and you were getting worse and worse and worse. Why do you think that Dr. Smith didn't refer you to Dr. Turnpaw sooner because she wasn't having success, right? We all have our limitations and- you know, would you think it was her pride? Do you think it was her ego? Because frankly, I feel like she should have done that sooner because we've heard Dr. Turnpah is an amazing Lyme specialist who's helped many people get their lives back. So I don't wanna be critical of yeah. her, but you know, what do you, what do you think that was all about?
3: You know, I don't know. And looking back on it, I know that Dr. Regina Smith at the time did the best that she had with the information that she had. And she will also say, I'm so sorry. I should have released you sooner. I should have, you know, taken your file across the aisle and said, Chris, take a look at this, you know? And they were apologetic because they felt like, well, maybe they didn't communicate enough, that that is something that we can do in our practice when your patient is really stuck. So it was kind of interesting that Samantha as the patient um, moving within that practice actually created a little more of a conversation about um, how we can, how they can collectively like-mindedly work on a patient and not let someone fall through the cracks. So um, we still have great respect for Regina. And we, I know she did the best she could at the time. Uh, but we are incredibly grateful to how unbelievable Dr. Shannon Smith and
2: Dr. Chris Turnpall were when they got a hold of Sam.
0: And did you want to say something? I look at you raising your hand.
2: Yeah, it, I think there's a lot of insight in the hindsight as well, because when I was going through that with Dr. Gina Smith, like I said, I was getting better and then worse and better and worse. So I think also me as a patient, I was focusing a lot on the better and kind of then throwing in, well, this is getting worse. And then looking back, seeing how much worse I had actually gotten. But, but at that time, I remember thinking like, well, I think I am getting better, right? I'm getting better. So I, it didn't feel like it, I needed a cathartic move. So as the patient, I take some of that responsibility as well.
0: But why do you think that it is Sam, right? Because I think, I think making a decision to move on from a doctor or a treatment or a protocol is an important thing to talk about, but it's a really hard topic, right? Mm. When, is, when is the right time to say, I'm making a change? And we've had many people tell us that they, they think they've made changes too soon and too late. So do you think that you possibly treated Dr. Regina too long because you wanted to believe you were getting better and you weren't? because of psychological factors, like you don't want to believe that you were declining. So you kind of convince yourself again, like you did earlier on, like I'm getting better, even though it wasn't true, right? I mean, like, what, what are your thoughts on that?
2: Yeah, I think that was really it for, for me, at least. I thought I was really mind over matter uh, to a harmful extent that I just wanted to believe so bad that I was getting better. And I wanted to leave this disease behind and I had the diagnosis, I had the treatment plan. So I was getting better, right? That's really what I was trying to believe.
0: And I think you're right. I mean, in growing up, I think all of us can relate to the fact that when you finally have a diagnosis of something, you get medicine and you get better. So in your mind, you were getting the proper treatment now. So you should be getting better. And you never question, should I be trying a different doctor, which is sort of unique in the Lyme world where you have to pivot to different doctors to get better in many cases, right? Mm -hmm. So that's not the norm. And it takes some of us longer to get there. And for me, it took Far longer than you, Sam. Yours was pretty short. You know, you were you, yeah. you and your mom are really smart, and you did that pretty quickly. For me, it took it took probably ten times what it took you to do that. So, I think that's an important lesson for our listeners to just be more in tune with their bodies and not believe the lies that their psyche is telling them that they're getting better if they're not. If you're still sick, you need to speak up and make a change. If you're not getting better after so long, and look, you were declining. You said right. So you told me earlier you were getting worse, but yet you convinced yourself you were getting better, right?
2: Yeah, and. I mean, looking back, I would say, take the leap because you could always go back to that doctor. I, I in most circumstances, I believe, but why not try the other thing? I, I do wish I would have taken the leap a bit sooner.
3: But I have to say when you're the, when you're in the moment and you're the sick one, it's very hard. It's exhausting. You're in the doctor's office. It. Yeah. So like I took the onus on all of those things. I was the mominger, right. And I was running the show and I do believe that anyone who is sick with a type of illness, of a tick-borne illness that is so convoluted, you have to have a support system. You've gotta have somebody who is seeing it from a bird's eye view. So I could see that Samantha was trying to, not necessarily downplay, but be like, you know, I'm gonna be all right. And I'm like, let's just try this. So I could pluck her out of that space without her having to do it. And I could put her in with the other doctor or the other situation. And then she didn't have to take on that energy of making that decision.
0: Sam, talk to us about now when you finally see Dr. Shannon Smith and Dr. Chris Turnpaw, how that was, you know, a turning point, no pun intended with Dr. Turnpaw there, where you now started to actually have real tangible improvements rather than imaginary improvements.
2: It did take a little bit. Um, I mean, I think I just clicked better with them because they were a bit more aggressive and I'm a go-getter. Like you give me this plan, all right. And they gave me responsibility as well. Like you can do these things and you can help in this process. So I started seeing some um, results. I started doing hyperbaric oxygen therapy. Um, I did uh, change my diet to the elimination diet, chiropractic adjustments and supplements to really fuel and nurture the body and its natural defenses um, and all those things. So at first I was like, this sucks. I hate the food. I hate doing this hyperbaric oxygen therapy. But halfway through that, I'd say there was a turning point where instead of getting worse with the reaction, I think I had a big Kirk's reaction and I started getting better and it was like clouds were were starting to lift and I just connected so well with those doctors and I remember Dr. Shannon Smith saying, this is not your forever. You you cannot believe me right now, but I'm telling you, this is not your forever. And I'll I'll remember that and I want to tell that to everybody because yeah, I didn't believe him. I was like, no, this sucks. I hate this. This feels like forever but he was right. It was not my forever.
0: And that's really powerful. As you're saying that, I'm just really reflecting on how powerful that one sentence is. This is not your forever. And I think everybody has to remember that if they're in the throes of it, this is not your forever, right? I mean, that's an important message, but let's talk more about hyperbaric oxygen therapy, because I do know that you did it from, you know, from our offline chat, you did it for 90 minute dives Monday through Friday, every single day until you got to 40 dives. I mean, look, I'm claustrophobic. That sounds really scary because you're in this chamber you can't get out. You have to get depressurized. So once you're in there and also if you have anxiety, right. And not, not to make people afraid of it, but clearly you did it and you got through it and you're better today. So were you afraid of it? Was it uncomfortable at first? And how did you feel shortly after doing your first couple of dives?
2: It was definitely uncomfortable. I remember the first one and being lowered into that tube and the glass is like a couple inches from my face. And I was like, Oh my God, this is terrifying but I got used to it pretty quick. And I, and I, I, maybe I for some reason knew that was really what I needed to do. And I did trust it a lot. And the nurses that were there were so nurturing and, and I trusted them too. Um, But the worst part was just staying in that position for so long. I remember being able to basically be aware of the pain in every single vertebrae, like all the bones around my hips. It was just, I could not get comfortable. Sometimes I would try diets laying on my stomach or, and you can't really switch your position. So I would stick to one and then feel so uncomfortable for that long. But I remember watching old cheesy movies so much. And, and somehow, I got through it. And I have to thank so my mom and my family and friends that were recruited to come help me because we had to drive uh, over 45 minutes to go to this clinic, it was like a job uh, Monday through Friday, and I couldn't drive at that point, because I was too cloudy. So for that first part, I had so much support that it felt right like this is what i need to do even though i'm really
0: uncomfortable so you're driving for 3 hours in total right 45 minutes each way now um you're 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 now in there for 90 minutes right so this is i mean i think i just did the math incorrect so but i think it was a total about 3 hours right so you're in there for about 3 hours between the travel and being in in the hyperbaric oxygen therapy it's about 3 hours out of your day and I think Carrie wants to jump in. I could tell. So as, as for our listeners. I love how you both are very, I love your 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 body language. So before Sam, you raise your hand. Carrie's putting her hand up. So Carrie, I'll let you jump in because I'm butchering the, the time frame here probably.
3: No, 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 you're not at all. All I was doing was adding that part of the hyperbaric chamber was having these bookend treatments that I think are really um important. So she would not only um, she'd go in and do the pulse electromagnetic field mat. So she would lay on the PEMF mat. And what that would do was add oxygen into the red blood cells. So it was like, you know, hyper HOV lane to get the oxygen moving. So she would lay there for about eight minutes. And in the very beginning, because she had such brain fog, they would also lay it across her eyes. So she would lay there and then they would look her, time's up. And then they would take her over and they would put her into the pressurized chamber. She would stay there until the allotted time and she'd get out and she would go into the far infrared sauna. And that's where she would detox. So they found that treatment, the bookend treatment of HBOT to be incredibly important. So as you can imagine, it did take longer time because the dives weren't as long in the beginning. And then they increased, you know, cause you'd have to get to the depth. And these are the Seacrest depth dives of like 2.4. Like these are the ones that are deep dives. So it could take a little bit longer than normal, but I just thought it was really uh, valuable for the listeners to understand these bookend treatments were really crucial to how that HBOT worked so well.
0: Okay, let's explore that a little bit deeper and why that was so valuable for this particular therapy, right? So the P- the PEMF, mat. I guess the first question I have for you is what is PEMF and how is it helpful? What does it do and what did it do for Sam before she went into these dives?
3: It's uh, the acronym is, it's the pulse electromagnetic field. So some people will do rifing. This might trigger a rifing, um, um, to technique, but essentially what it does is it speeds up your right, your red blood cells. Your red blood cells carry oxygen. We as humans do not intake enough oxygen on a regular basis as healthy people. And um, one of the things that we know helps us is infusing ourselves with oxygen. Oxygen kills off the bugs and oxygen also repairs tissue. So if you've already started the body in preparation of putting oxygen in these red blood cells, now you're making it that much more um, able to take in the hyperbaric oxygen therapy in this chamber. Some people can have a little bit of a response where they get a little bit too much oxygen. And at TurnPal they were able to give Samantha treatment just for a little bit of time called H2 Absorb. And it just sort of took off some of that excess oxygen um, that built up in the beginning of her treatment. But having that start before HBOT was really important. And then after getting out and going into the far infrared sun is where you detox. That's where you're sweating out the toxins that have all built up from the killing of those bugs from being in a hyper oxygen
0: state. So the PMF mat, which is a mat you lay on and then also putting it over her eyes, you said as well, that allows the body to speed up the red blood cells. And really essentially what that's doing is further oxygenating your body and allowing more oxygen to be in your bloodstream. Then you go into this hyperbaric oxygen therapy chamber which again, pumps more oxygen into your body. And collectively, the PEMF plus the HBOT oxidates your body, which kills off bacteria and viruses, not just Lyme disease. Is that the general idea behind it? Yeah. And it also
3: rebuilds tissues. So you can imagine that all the tissues that were kind of in disrepair from what she was going through, um, you know, cartilage, meninges, all those things are now getting repaired. Uh, Professional athletes use these Uh the the hyperbaric all of the time when they have bad knees and they have bad whatever it is, they lay in these
2: to repair. So it does both things, it's repairing the body.
0: And then this is
2: where I kind of nerd out because the oxygen is like the spirochetes don't like oxygenated environments. They basically just like I imagine them just shriveling up and dying with so much oxygen being pumped in. Um, and then oxygen is the receiver of so many metabolic processes in your body, which I later learned. So it's just such a good fuel. I mean, too much, you go into oxidative stress, which is why I use the H2 absorb, um, to bind the hydrogen to the oxygen, but in the right balance, it's killing, it's creating an environment that spirochetes don't like, and it's fueling your me- metabolic processes so that your body can cycle through that and get all that stuff out.
0: So Sam, it's not only killing the Lyme and other bad things in your body, it's rebuilding your body and making your body more efficient, right? But how did you know, and I think a lot of our listeners may be thinking, how did you know when it was too much oxygen and you had to take something to kind of curb that, right? How did, did you, is that something you knew because, as the patient based on what you were feeling or is it based off of some testing that they were doing while you were receiving this therapy? What indicators did you use to determine if you were being over-oxygenated?
2: It was more based on how I was feeling um, and it was a very intuitive feeling, I think for me to, to that line between not enough and too much where I felt like it was being fueled, but like there was a, there was an overdrive button, but they were really um, preemptive in it. So I didn't feel the oxidative stress stress very much because they knew that might happen. And so they gave me the H2 absorb uh, before any real oxidative stress actually happened, which was really good for them to be preventative.
0: Sam, let's geek out even more on this because I'm loving this as well. So let's talk about, let's talk about now the far infrared sauna, right? Because initially Rich and I thought, you know, that just the, the, the only benefit to that is sweating. And when you're sweating, you're removing toxins through your skin, which is your largest detox organ, right? But then we've, we've learned that there's even more to it, right? So what we've learned is when you're in the far infrared sauna, it's increasing blood flow and circulation in your body. It's allowing things to get flushed out, but it's also helping your liver function better too, right? There's a lot of other benefits to the far-infrared sauna. So what are your thoughts on the far-infrared sauna from the perspective of removing toxins, detoxing, detoxing your body, but also allowing your body to just operate more efficiently by increasing blood flow and circulation within your body?
2: Yeah. I'm weary about detox things because your body has such amazing wisdom to detox itself. So when there are things that are advertised as this will detox your body, I'm, I'm weary. Um, but it did, it's a supportive detox where you said it helps your liver. So your liver already knows how to do that. And so it, it just, yeah, it helps it speeds up that metabolic process or the red blood cells. So they move faster through your body. They can go through that cycle of, of kind of reorganizing and, sorting what we need and what we don't need in the liver, um, just makes it more efficient. So it's a supportive detox.
0: So Sam, I'm, I'm exhausted just thinking about having to drive 45 minutes, then lay on a PEMF mat, then go into a 90 minute dive, then get out and going into the for infrared sauna and then driving 45 minutes home and then having to crash. Right. So what was that like for you, especially in the beginning to have to go through this physically when you're so sick, it had to be exhausting for you.
2: That was my work for the day, that was was my day. Uh, Afterwards I would sleep and sleep and (laughs) sleep and then I would cook because I was doing the uh, elimination diet and I found a bit of solace in cooking and that was the thing that I would enjoy then later on in the day when I had the energy to try to put something together um, to eat because I was eating differently than the rest of my
0: family. So just quickly if you can Sam, explain to us what the elimination diet is and how cooking and going through this process was an integral part of your healing in, in addition to the PEMF, the HBOT, and the far-infrared sauna. So
2: basically the way Dr. Chris Krumpal would explain it to me is that my, my immune system was so overactive because at that point it had become an autoimmune issue and things that I was putting in my body, my immune system was kind of blind and it was just attacking so many things. Um, and there are a lot of common foods um, like dairy and grains and and later, I didn't really react well to well the meat and eggs um, that, that my body was just blindly fighting. So the fuel I was trying to give it was actually being introduced into the war. Um, and also with the leaky gut from taking so many antibiotics, I just wasn't getting those nutrients. So I basically had to strip down the diet and give my body things that were pretty well known to be fuel and not the rest. And then slowly add things back in. And I've sugar is also a big one that that was fueling the fire as well. So... After six weeks of uh, very kind of bland eating, um, simple eating, I was able to then add things back in to see what my body actually reacted to when it wasn't reacting to everything.
0: Sam, I want to geek out a little bit more with you because I just love going deep into these types of topics, right? So you mentioned leaky gut, you mentioned antibiotics. So the first question I have for you and this two-part question is, what other adverse side effects or risks are there to antibiotics that you didn't know about when you took them that you learned about later that you wish you knew earlier on? And also, if you can speak specifically to leaky gut, because many people don't believe it's real, I personally do, and I think the permeability of your GI tract and the ability of food to be able to leak through and get into your bloodstream and cause an immune response is a really common factor in chronic Lyme patients because of overuse of antibiotics. So can you speak to both of those, Raph, please?
2: Yeah, exactly. I think so much use of antibiotics, um, also with antibiotic resistance, there's a lot of um, you know research and and fear and potential in, in bad things for antibiotic resistance. Right. Um, and then leaky gut, I mean, your gut flora is so important and it's how you process your fuel and your fuel is what builds things in your body. It's your base. So when you're kind of tearing away those that microbiome that is helping to support you, you don't have as much to, to, you know, process those nutrients and pick what you need and what you don't need. And there are holes then that in the actual gut lining that get produced and and things that you don't want in the bloodstream and the rest of the body get through. And that just creates alarms and the immune system doesn't like that. And it's this chain reaction to those antibiotics that kill the gut flora that can create so many problems throughout the rest of the
0: body. And I just want to share, Sam, that I'm on the gut revival kit by Dr. Rolls, And I just did it because I love him and his products. And I did not expect to have the positive response that I've had. And it's been transformational, honestly, with diet and, and nutrition and absorption of things. And then and it's been kind of crazy to see how powerful that is. And I was on antibiotics for a long time as well. So I think that's something that many people overlook when it comes to healing from Lyme disease. But let's pivot back over to Carrie, because I have a couple uh, now, Carrie, you are always the objective observer for Sam, right? When Sam's saying I'm getting better, you're going, oh, no, you're not. You're gently telling her, we need to, we need to change course here, right? So now it sounds like your daughter's really getting proper help and she's starting to get better. So at what time during this eight week window of her getting the trio therapy, did you see a change for the better in Sam's health?
3: So she was also journaling during this time. She wanted to see how the treatment was working for her. And so she would have these little journals. Um, And she did note, and I did see, that around the 11th dive, so that would have been going into her third week, that she reported that she didn't feel like she had as much brain fog. And as a matter of fact, I watched her not go take a nap, you know, like immediately I started to see the color come back to her face. She was ashen before. Like she just wasn't like cute pink skin, Sam, you know, she was very ashen. The color is now coming back to her face. Her eyes looked different. She was focusing better. Um, she seemed happier. She had made these short goals of I just want to be able to walk a block with my dog. I just want to walk a block with my dog. And so she would go and do that. Um, She would be in the kitchen and she would be able to make a little bit more, be a little more spirited in the kitchen. The deal was always make whatever you want. I'm going to clean up because I know you don't have the energy to do both. And I could see that she was starting to get excited because remember, she's the kid who puts 200% into things. She's always asking, but how, and when she sees a result of things that she's learning and doing, her life comes back in her face. So I could see probably going into week three of her dives, dive 11, that there was this light that was starting to come back
2: around her.
0: So Sam, from week three forward, did you just continue to get better and better at that point?
2: I think yeah it was no longer the better and two steps back it was maybe two steps better one step back which is overall growth and it was amazing it was those little goals that 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 she kind of reminded me of walking the dog and being able to go to the grocery store and being able to see a friend and then eventually I was able to run on a water treadmill which was amazing that was like oh so life-giving and And eventually I got into yoga, which is a huge part of my story now. And it was just these tiny little goals that seemed so insignificant to a lot of other people that when I got to check them off, they felt so huge.
0: So now Sam, at this point, let's fast forward to the end of the eight week window. You're done with this. Are you staying on anything? Are you doing PEMF still? Are you doing infrared saunas? Are you on antibiotics? Are you on herbs? Are you doing anything at all when you're done with the eight weeks of this trio combination therapy?
2: I was still doing some infrared um, sauna, uh, but no more HBOT, no more PEMF therapy. I was doing supplements, um, mostly to supplement the uh, immune system. And of course, nutrition was such a key thing. It was something I'm never going back on. Um, I've, yeah, that was a huge part of my continuing wellness journey.
0: So Sam, just give us a quick overview of that time to the present date. Was there anything else that you did? in your healing journey that's noteworthy for our listeners before Rich picks up to go over your transformation and how you are today?
2: Sure. Um, Movement was a really healthy thing then for me. I think when I was able to take a walk or when I was able to run on that water treadmill, when I was able to do a simple yoga class, um, though the movement became so healthy for me and empowering for my body, no matter how gentle it was, I really don't want to undermine the power of mindful and joyous movement that was really medicinal for me.
0: So it sounds like the healthier you were getting, you kept making gradual improvements and doing more and more and more. It started with underwater treadmill, right? Then you started being able to walk and it, And as you started to get healthy, you kept pushing yourself and pushing yourself within reason. And that mm-hmm. pattern just kept going and you just propelled forward until you reached optimal health where you are today. Is that kind of a general overview of the time from post-HBOT and trio, trio therapy to the present date?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think for a couple of years I didn't trust my immune system. I was still getting sick very easily in my body. I'd say my immune system is a bit dramatic when I do get a common illness or cold. It would be more dramatic than than the normal person, but that is like nothing compared to the symptoms that I used to have.
0: But your body was slowly rebuilding itself. Your immune system isn't going to get better overnight, right? So your body was just getting better and better and better. So the final question I have before Rich picks back up because I know he's antsy to jump in here is. That, you know, looking back at your entire journey, and this is a hard question because you have to be a little critical on yourself and and your experience. If you had to do one thing differently in your journey, what would that be?
2: It's hard because as soon as I started getting well, I kind of joked that once I could start walking, I started walking and then running away from life because I wanted to leave it in the past. I didn't want to think about it anymore. I was so done. I was moving on. But I guess looking back, um, maybe the only thing is, is seeing the power in food earlier on because I didn't take it seriously. And I was so, I was very grumpy about the food and it's, uh, in the outcome, it's become one of the most powerful things. So, I mean, my journey to wellness was a lot quicker than a lot of people. And I think it could have been even quicker if I did realize the power in food because everything else was also really powerful.
1: So Carrie, talk to us about um, your perspective on the steps that you took together with your daughter to um, get to a place of healing and what would you have done differently or what would you have recommended, what would you recommend to another family if they were on the same journey that, that they might do differently than you and Sam did?
3: I don't know that I could have done anything differently than I did because I talked about it. I asked questions. I contacted people. I felt like I had no business contacting. Like I was following, you know, um LymeDisease.org and I found Lonnie Markham's number and I called her because she had a daughter who was the same age going through things. And I just felt like at this point, when people are going through these debilitating illnesses, you could just reach out to anybody you possibly can as a parent. And I was making contacts with as many people. I feel like I I'm, I'm, I'm happy with the way in which the process went in that I just, every time I made a doctor's appointment, I still made another one waiting in the wings because I wasn't going to just rest my laurels and whatever I found out at that doctor. Like I just couldn't get an answer fast enough for my child. Nothing could be fast enough. So I think I did a good job at expediting the process and really listening to what other people had told me. Um, Do I wish that I knew that functional medicine was right around the corner and that was the key to it early on? Absolutely. And so to that, I would say, when I know that people are suffering and they come to me, the first thing I say is, can you afford to go to a functional medicine practitioner? Can you afford to go? And especially in my area, can you afford to go to where we go, Turnpah Health and Wellness, because it is more of a concierge medicine format. They don't use um, insurance uh, models. But that's really important because when they can over they can oversee everything from the blood work to the root cause of the issue. That's when you can find out what your body needs to get well. It's not a one size fits all. So yeah, um, I'm. That's that's my biggest advice to people is until our mainstream medical doctors know what to do. I'm saying you need to go through functional medicine um, or find a line literate doctor in your area immediately. Like don't, you know, don't mess around. That's the first thing you should do.
1: So Carrie, let's talk about the pivoting element of, um, of this journey, right? Because we've learned a number of different things during the course of the 250 podcasts that we've done. But one of the things that we've learned is it's never one doctor and it's never one treatment protocol. You have to be prepared to pivot. But it's a very difficult thing to do, especially when you're starting to have positive results, especially when you begin to develop a connection with the people that you're working with. So how did you make the decision to pivot or to help your daughter make the decision to pivot from one practitioner to another so you can have this whole team approach to healing?
3: I The, the person who's the most important in the room is my child and not the doctor. So I'm not really concerned about hurting a doctor's feelings. I'm concerned about getting my child well. So we are always taught that the doctor knows everything. Don't question the doctor. And I'm not trying to tell folks that they should be uh, disrespectful in any way, but you need to take ownership over your health and what you feel is right. And you need to do the same for your loved one. So, um, I I can't say that I wish I would have done it sooner because, like Samantha said, we had to go through sort of, are we well? Are you not? How are you reacting to this? And also, she was in you know college. She's not home all the time. She's managing. She's not in front of me to see everything during this time. So, the pivot for me was okay. You're home for break, and this stuff hasn't been working so far. We're going to go across the hall. And I think that many folks listening to this they need to understand that. You have to do what you feel is right to move forward and get an answer. And like Sam said, you can always go back to the other doctor, but you have got to keep moving forward and don't say stay stagnant.
1: Well, Carrie, the other thing that I'm concerned about with this pivoting is we can stay with a practitioner for too long and not benefit from that practitioner doing as much as they have done for you. But then we also have this other piece, which is being coachable and making sure we don't pivot away too soon and, and not give that protocol of that practitioner enough of an opportunity to help us to heal. So can you give us some yeah. guidance on how you were striking that balance as you know as, as Sam's mom?
3: So I think when you are looking at someone who is trying to heal from an illness, It's quite different than if you're the person that's in the illness, right? You know, it just, it just is for me, I was trying to be respectful of Samantha's journey and time in it. How was she feeling? If I rushed her, did that make her feel like she was a failure? If I rushed her, did that make her feel like she did not, did maybe she didn't do the steps right that the doctor had laid out for her, right? So I think what you have to be able to do is have an honest conversation with the person who's really struggling and say, where are you right now? Are you, are you frustrated? Are you, are you feeling as though you have really done everything this doctor has asked of you? And, you know, if you have to be honest, the person who's sick has to be honest. Like Sam said, the food part sucks, right? There's always going to be parts of these treatments in the journey that are going to be uncomfortable and you don't want to do them. But you really do have to stick it out. And they can take a while. They take a, a while to have an effect. And so I think the person who's sick, they I know they want out of it as fast as possible. I know they want to find that next pill that's going to make them feel better immediately. But I think they have to be honest with themselves. Are they doing the work? Are they really listening and doing the work? And I think that's really important. And unfortunately, it is work, it's not fun. I did the food work with her because misery loves company. And I didn't want her to be the only one in the house who couldn't walk into the pantry like everybody else could. So, you know, I just think that's a really valuable part. Like, are you really doing the work?
1: So Sam, talk to us about having your mom as, um, as a resource. Um, and it's not just a mom, it's a journalist who is going to develop a number of different sources, right? This is not this is not a journalist who's going to rely on one source. She's making two or three doctors appointments as you're going to one, right? She's not going to trust anyone despite their expertise because it's her responsibility to make sure that the experts are doing the work that they're doing. That's what she's trained to do. So talk to us about how important it was to have not just a mom, but a mom who's a trained journalist and she used her professional skill set to help you get the diverse set of treatment that you needed to heal?
2: My gosh, I'm just so grateful because I would have done none of that if it were just me. Um, yeah, I can't thank her enough for being one step ahead even though she had no idea where that step was um, at times. It was so important to have a plan A, B and C and be so, so in it with me, um, yeah. It was, I can't imagine going through that without her. I don't think I'd be here today.
1: So Sammy, another one of the things that we think that we've observed as a pattern here at Boot Camp is looking for shortcuts, right? And I think one of the things that's also awesome about your story together, uh, you and your mom, is that your mom as a journalist knows how to get to shortcuts. She'd get to the expert. She'd call the expert. She'd get the expert to download all the information to her and then she'd apply it. Right. And, and that's a pattern we've seen with people who were successful in this. And I just think it's awesome that you had this this uh, journalist mom who is using these tools that she would use to develop a story to now also be a shortcut set of tools to help you to heal.
2: Yeah, it was so important and shortcuts I are, were so integral in getting right to that expert or getting right to that information. But there's also a certain extent that cannot be cut short. Like there's time in healing and there's effort and healing. And there was such a balance between the shortcut to the doctor, to the information. But a lot of times the long route, the inevitable long route of the effort that I had to put into the process, like the dives and the food and the antibiotics that we waited so long with there sometimes shortcuts can't be avoided, in the doing.
1: So now, Sam, another one of the patterns we've uh, learned here uh, with the people who have more successful um, healing journeys is that they recognize that Lyme disease requires you to heal spiritually, emotionally, and physically. And talk to us about how yoga gave you that full-spectrum of healing and how that ultimately became a really important part of not only your healing journey, but your life.
2: I Yeah, I had no idea about really the spiritual components and the emotional and everything. It was just all physical for me. And yoga is so sneaky in that it hooked me in and I was feeling better, not only physically, but mentally and feeling purposeful and feeling connected. And it's such a powerful practice that goes along with such powerful communities. And it opens you to a world of then meditation of, of different types of spirituality that really helps me heal then on a next level. Yeah, the physical was first feeling better, but even to this day, I still work through kind of the trauma in my body uh, that, it, that it holds from being like that, for, for that from that illness um, and yoga helps me through that. And it's such a joyous practice that has come out of it. Um, I just, my whole thing is about uh, moving, moving with joy is, is medicinal um, now. And I never would have said that because I was the one to push myself to the max to go for it. And now I just find so much joy in movement and that joy doesn't really, it comes from the movement physically, but the bigger part of it is the emotional and spiritual component that it makes you connected to your whole entire being.
1: So Sam, one of the things that we've, found a little bit difficult about doing this podcast is that uh, children have a longer healing journey than adults. Uh, Child onset Lyme disease is very different than adult onset Lyme disease. Um, And one of the things that I'm going to want to talk to your mom about in a minute, but I, I do want to stay with you is, is one of the reasons why that's a challenge is because in many cases, your parent is taking care of your treatment plan and your parent is, is in charge of taking care of your, making your decisions and getting you to a point where you're in remission. And because so much of that was done for you, it's then difficult for you to now take control of your own life and take control of your own health and ultimately now be a healthy adult and avoid a lot of the challenges that, um, that we, we've seen repeatedly with children going into making the transition into adulthood. So I want you to talk to me about two things, Sam. How did your mom sort of make sure she set proper boundaries in this healing journey so that she was helping, but not taking control of you? And secondly, how is yoga helping you to now be in touch with your spirit, your emotions, and your physical signals so that you're now taking the appropriate steps to keep yourself healthy?
2: So I think my mom set clear boundaries or we just had clear communication and she always included me in the things uh, that we were doing. And I had a choice. I always, at the end of the day, had a choice. She would make strong cases for why I should do things, but it was a team effort and I was always on board with that. And then that kind of translated into me then taking more ownership of my health, especially when it came to the things that need more ownership. It went from taking pills to changing my whole diet and changing my um, whole lifestyle with stress and everything. So it was this foundation that was laid that I luckily was able to be basically like given treatment protocols into taking ownership of my health and what true health and wellness means, which I'm still learning to this day through yoga, but yoga really helps me to have that kind of daily or, or consistent practice um, um, that grounds me. and. And I just feel so intuitive with my body now, um, more even I, I felt intuitive when I was sick, but even more and to really listen, to know when I need to pull back, when I need to do more, when stress is getting to me um, and, and managing and knowing, knowing the importance of stress and how it can really affect your overall health.
1: So Sam, one of the things uh, I'm sure your family is really proud of you for, and I'm certainly very proud to know that all during this journey you went to one of the top colleges in the country and you graduated in 2020. So talk to us about how you were able to get through all of your university studies at Penn State while going through all of these challenges with your health.
2: It, it was tough. I'm not going to say it was easy. That semester that I took off, I took two online classes And don't tell my professors, I already got the degree, but my mom wrote like two of my papers because I was just not here. Um, But the rest of the work I did do, I promise. And I don't know, it was just that still that spirit in me that I wanted to do the things. I then studied abroad in Spain because I fell in love with Spanish and I just really wanted to travel um, so that I made that my goal. And it was just this fine line between never wanting to slip back into that illness. That was priority, never wanting to slip back. But knowing that I had so much life to live and I had this newfound health, it was just like, oh my God, I have this body again. I can I have this mind again. I can use it. And it was just fuel to accomplish what I wanted to do. I graduated uh, with a degree in biology and a degree in Spanish. And I was going to go to medical school, but it was 2020. And I, I did feel burnt out at the end mentally because I had pushed myself so hard to still do it, to still graduate. Um, so I had the intuition to take time off and I'm super excited to say that I'm going to chiropractic school next year in Spain to combine my two loves um, and open up doors for myself. And this time that I've spent teaching yoga in Costa Rica has also been so fulfilling and so healing. So it really this newfound health and wellness just gave me that push to say, this is my life, I'm gonna live it to the fullest.
1: So now talk to us about, uh, well, first, your time in Costa Rica, because I made the uh, mistake of assuming you were there on vacation. But as it turns out, you're working there. So how did you how did you make the decision to go down to work in Costa Rica? And what kind of work are you doing there?
2: Uh, So basically, it was not my plan. I graduated and I just wanted to travel. And luckily, I found this window um, during the pandemic era that I could go to Costa Rica because I could get in and I could work at the surf camp teaching yoga. And I had done a similar thing when I had studied abroad in Spain, so it felt right. And I was only going to be in Costa Rica for a maximum three months. And I thought I had to go home, study for the MCAT, get my life together. Um, But it turns out I I ended up moving to this beautiful surf town and getting a job teaching yoga that could support me living here. It's a simpler life. I surf in the morning, teach some yoga, and and I enjoy life. Um, But it it, just the path opened up for me to be able to share this healing modality of yoga. Uh, that I I have been gifted with uh, through my teachers. So so I got here today, and it's been most of uh, almost a year and a half, a year and a couple months that I've been here, and I love it.
1: So now let's talk about your your education. You're now you're now pivoting from your undergraduate studies to now professional studies, and you're now going to study uh, chiropractic in Spain. So why chiropractic and why Spain? <laughs>
2: Um, chiropractic, I did, I took a long look of what kind of health professional do I want to be? Do I even still want to be a health professional? Um, because the pandemic really swirled things up in my brain. Um, but I truly feel this deep want and need to heal and help, I help people find healing. So I don't think I can give that to really anyone. I think you, su- as a medical professional, you support someone in finding their own health and, I think personally, my piece of that is chiropractic, where I could be a bridge for people who really trust traditional medicine, but are maybe looking for something more. Um, again, basically just seeing myself as a bridge. And there's so many other opportunities that I can go from that. I want a physical job. I want to be able to have a practice where I can work and not sit at a desk all day. Um, so the freedom of that chiropractor also just calls to my to my nature. Um, and in Spain, because I found this- wonderful program in Barcelona that is just so holistic uh, it really wants you to collaborate with other medical professionals um, and give you tools to also see beyond what an illness or what disease disease would be um, in a community in a person's life and so the more holistic approach to health I can have I think the better so that's why I fell in love with that and if I, I'm a nomad I think at heart um, so I'm living in Costa Rica now I love Spanish and I want to be able to practice in other parts of the world, so I'll be able to practice in Spanish and English, which I'm super excited about.
1: So now, those two papers that your mom helped you with, how'd you do with those? <laughs> did you get Did you get good grades? I got a B
2: on one, and I think on the other, so she failed me.
1: Well, that was a good Lord saying to you, even though your mom's a journalist, we're not going to give you an A because you're cheated.
2: Exactly, exactly. I do regret that a little bit, but I had, I had to do what I had to
1: do. You did, you did, Noah. So, so Carrie, let's, um let's now uh, put your mom hat back on and uh, help other moms who have children who have Lyme disease. Because unfortunately, um, as I had shared with your daughter earlier, uh, we do not see positive results coming from many young people who have, have, uh, you know, juvenile onset Lyme disease. And I think part of the challenge is, is that um, it it is so scary as a parent to have a child to be that sick and to have a long diagnostic journey and to have doctors who are gaslighting you and doctors don't understand. And it's just, just, it's an overwhelming, you know, um, experience for a parent to have these challenges. And and parents just take control of their children's lives and they take control of their care. And then it's really hard to pivot first for the parent away from now being in control of the entirety of the child's life. But even more importantly, pivoting away so that the child can be empowered and then take control of their own life. So how were you able to strike that balance with Sam um, as, as a parent going through this terrible journey?
3: I think it has a lot to do with um, the relationship you have with your child and the age of your child and and who your child is as a person. Um, Like I said, Samantha has always been a go-getter. She's been such a blessing to have in our lives, the way that, you know, we were able to raise her. She's easy and fun loving. So she was actually um, an easy patient. You know, she was, she was in the fight with us. She was invested as much as I was, you know, and that's really important. Um, One thing you don't probably don't know is that our youngest child also had Lyme. And um, I'll tell you this. If I had not experienced what I experienced with Sam, I would have missed Shay's diagnosis. The only reason I caught her diagnosis that the primary care provider that I tried with missed, you know, constantly I knew enough to know. So I will say from that experience, because if I had not known what to look for, these were symptoms um, that a 12 year old girl had. She was having growing pains, and I'm using my little air quotes growing pains. She was overly anxious. She was getting frustrated about things. She was tired. She was cranky. Have I not explained all preteen young girls?
1: period certainly all four of mine
3: right so when you put in the context of that type of symptom list it is so easy for not only a parent to dismiss their child but for a provider to dismiss the child because that's exactly what happened on my end so i it is a blessing in an insane way that we went through we went through with Samantha because it, it expedited the process of Shay getting well And so to the parents out there who, um, when they have very young children, my heart aches for them because their child isn't able to articulate as well as Samantha could. And because they can't articulate as well. And because the symptoms fluctuate so much, it's exhausting. It is frustrating. And you probably at times look at your child and go, I don't understand. Like, why, why can't you just get up? Why can't you just this? But I can appreciate how a parent, um, downward spiral and not know how to really handle a young child. So my, my heart always goes out to the parents who are trying to help a young child heal. And I will say this, you no matter what age your child is, you have to have respect for them as a person and you have to share with them and talk with them the value and the meaning behind getting well. They have to be participants. Um, Shay learned how to be a participant in her health because she saw her big sister do it. And she knew the value of taking her supplements. She knew the value of cutting gluten and sugar, not eating the things that her friends were eating at the lunch table. So you have to sit down and have a conversation. It's not a form of punishment, the things that you're doing with your child. And in some ways, your child's going to grow up faster because they have to be brought into a little bit of an adult conversation so that there is a common school of thought between everybody that the common goal is to get you well. How do we do this together? I think that's a big thing. How do we do this together?
1: So Carrie, now let's talk about um, how Lyme disease was working on you while you were working on Lyme disease, right? And as you were going through the process of helping your daughters in um, in this health challenge that they were overcoming, that you were changing as well. Uh, We started this podcast off by talking about how you're most well-known for Sam Spoons and how that awesome organization has become, you know, one of the leading organizations in the Lyme community. Um, Talk to us about, you know, what the inspiration was for Sam Spoons and how this journey with your family resulted in a desire, in building a desire in you to now help the rest of the community.
3: So I am a disseminator of information. I love to provide information to people and I can't pinpoint why in which I thought that that was supposed to be me. I I really don't know. I just know that I had the ability to raise awareness. I had this crazy thought that if I start talking about it, then um, people are going to listen. I mean, it wasn't out of arrogance. It was just, don't people want to know this information? I mean, I'm just a soccer mom, folks. I'm just a soccer mom.
1: Well, and, yeah, a it's a true, professionally you know, trained journalist, soccer mom, but, but okay.
3: <laughs> but in truth, it your profession doesn't matter when your kid is sick. It just doesn't matter. It what matters is that you want to get your child well. Yes, it helps that I was in a position, and and I have. I possess that strength of wanting to share and tell people. And I had an incredible group at the station who was willing to allow me to have a live space to do so, right? And I also was introduced to Project Lime very early on um, when Heather Hurst was there. And that was such a cathartic point for me because I was connecting with someone who was also building something out of something that happened to her because she had been sick with Lyme. And we kind of moved together and she gave me the parameters of being able to be a voice, being a Project Lyme ambassador for Pennsylvania. And she kind of provided me with more tools. So I found myself in a beautiful community of folks and I was blessed to be able to have a job and a position that I could elevate the message of awareness.
1: Carrie, what we see on a transformational uh, plane is that as we go through this journey, we learn more and more about what our gifts are. We learn more about how we can contribute more based on the gifts that we have, the way we've been created. And it seems to me that one of the things that we've already talked about here is that you saw that the the platform that you were trained to work in wasn't performing its most important function, at least as it it relates to the Lime community, which is education, right? We, after we graduate from college or law school or whatever professional school we go to, I'll use myself as an example, where do I get my education from? I get it from the news media, right? And the news media wasn't performing the function it was supposed to perform in your community, and you... (laughs) you took your experience and your god-given gifts and you created an organization that's designed to fill that that gap so give us some more you know you have to take a little bit more credit you have to you have to please see this journey as as, as on the spiritual plane and talk about how that came together in and is manifested in Sam spoons
3: So I wanted to be able to bring my daughter's name into this because she was the reason why it happened. Also spoons, not everybody in the Lyme world does know that, you know, a spoon is representative of the amount of energy it takes to do a simple task. And I really thought that was important to bring those two things together. But I created this foundation simply because number one, there is no reason why we should have to spend the amount of money, that we have to spend to get well, because we were bitten by a tick and because we do not have health organizations that fully support wellness in the tick-borne illness communities. It is archaic and it is not designed to treat people with dignity, respect. It drains a bank account and I'm not okay with that. We could afford to get our daughter well and I have guilt that I can't turn around and pick up somebody else and go get them well. I know the value of the dollar to get somebody well. So honestly, knowing that we had an organization in Pennsylvania already that was geared heavily towards education, I wasn't trying to reinvent the wheel there. So I wanted to be able to create a place where we could give grants. And I also wanted to educate people at the same time on a a very grassroots level. Like I want to talk to me. i want to talk to me and I want to say, this is how you can prevent a tick bite. Or if your child is sick or your loved one is sick, this is how we can start to get the ball rolling to get you well. So I wanted to be able to expose with education who Sam Spoons is, but ultimately I want to help people get well. I I don't, I want them to have the the same success in life as we've been able to provide for Sam and we were able to do for Shay. So that's education and having the, the funding to be able to get yourself well. So Sam Spoons is created out of the fact that my heart hurts for people who cannot afford to get well and who do not have the education that they need to be preventative, just like not getting skin cancer and, you know, brushing your teeth every day so you don't get tooth decay. It's kind of that simple.
1: So Sam, how does it feel to have your journey honored with a foundation and and a purpose as just described by your mom?
2: I'm going to be completely transparent. At first, I like I said, I ran away from Lyme. It was her thing, not mine. Yeah, my name's on it, but I'm done with that chapter. No more Lyme talk. Um, but little, poco poco, little by little, I just have so much, I want, to be, I want to be more involved. I have so much respect and I feel more connected to it. And it's just amazing that my mom took that. I mean, I ran from it and she took it and made it, into something to help other people um, and I think I'm doing it in a different way and in the future it will it will pay off in a different way but um, it's it's amazing what she's doing and if I were so much of a nomad I would be there and helping but I help from afar and um, yeah I am really proud and happy to not happy to have my name on there happy to do what I can do and that my story has is, is doing things for other people, is creating change, is it's there's more good coming from it outside of myself, reaching far beyond.
1: You know, Sam, one of the things that, that I often think is that the healthiest people are the people who leave the tribe that they weren't, they didn't voluntarily become a member of, right? When you become a member of the Lyme tribe, you're pulled in, right? And one of the things you wanna make sure that you, you feel very much at peace with is leaving the tribe as soon as you can and not, not feel that you have to stay in this, you know, in this tribe. And unfortunately sometimes even have an identity of a sick person. So I really love the way you just described how much you feel blessed to be honored by your mom's approach to trying to you know, fill in the gaps where the journalists have failed. Um, help people who have been on this very difficult journey um, deal with some of the, you know, the, 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 the guilt that comes along with being privileged and having the tools that she needed to help you and your sister overcome these challenges and do that in a really healthy way, but at the same time, not pull you back into a place where you may have, you know, be a part of a tribe that no one really should want to be a part of. So I really just think the way the two of you have just described, um, you know, your your separate transformations is unbelievably beautiful. And really, I think very much on point with how a healthy mom and child should go forward after they've achieved, you know, the beautiful outcome that you've you've achieved. So I just, I, I can't tell you how beautiful I think that is. So now let me ask you the last question because we've kept you much longer than we thought we would, but it's such a beautiful story. And you're two beautiful humans that it's hard for us to, to say good night. Um, but I'm not going to ask you first, Sam, if God forbid uh, your mom came down to Costa Rica to visit you and after having a beautiful day together, you saw a tick biting your mom, what would you do so that she wouldn't have to go on a difficult Lyme disease journey?
2: well if anybody's going to be bit by a tick i mean if if, how do i how do i word this my mom is a tick's worst nightmare so if a tick were to bite my mom (laughs) they would be in for it um but if it were somebody that who was not as educated as my mom because gosh she'd be fine i I wouldn't worry about her um because i don't think she would get bit by a tick in the first place but um there's so many resources. I mean, I would tell them to get their tick tested. I would tell them to go to a doctor. I would be an ongoing resource um, and make sure they have a support system. And, but for, first and foremost, just to, to take care of that immediate danger, get the tick off uh, as you should and get it tested and be pre- preventative, be preemptive and, and don't wait.
1: So Carrie, we recently interviewed a young woman who I asked this question to, and she said, if I got a tick bite, I'd light myself on fire. So <laughs> tell me what your reaction would be, um, Carrie, if God forbid, uh, Samantha came home uh, and uh, being the outdoorsy gal that she is in Pennsylvania, found her, you, you found a tick biting her.
3: Um, so I'm seven minutes away from an amazing uh Functional medicine, Lyme literate doctor. And without a doubt, I would put her in the car and I would go there because I would go straight to the folks who know exactly what they need to do to manage a person who's been bitten. You know, you don't go to primary care physician to treat your cancer. You go to a cancer specialist so I would say, you know, whether it is Sam, it's my husband, it's my neighbor down the street, you know, I get calls left and right. You guys know that, right? I'm getting calls left and right and texts and messages and DMs and whatever. And what I tell every single person, wherever they are in their journey, I say to them, you know, first of all, don't panic, um, relax. And I want you to call the first person you know, functional medicine doctor that is closest to you who can give you a very good blood work, work workup, an accurate workup. So I always think that if you know the blueprint of the body of what's going on in the system, now you can start looking at what needs to be tweaked and managed and what medications and all those things. So um, that would be my first assessment to someone. I would say, don't panic, but let's go get a full blood workup and find out what your level of infection really is.
1: Harry Sam, Perry, we can't thank you enough for taking time to share your beautiful story with the community we call Tick Camp.
3: We thank appreciate you so much for this. Yes, yeah, sorry. You guys are amazing, Rich, Matt. You've always been a supporter of us. I love what you do and the work that you do. Um, this community is blessed to have you. And um, I am grateful along with Sam to be able to talk to people. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it.
0: Thank you for listening to our Tick Bootcamp interview with our guests, Sam and Carrie Perry. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Sam and Carrie Perry, please visit them on Instagram at samsspoonsfdn or sam.perry7 or Carrie M. Perry. Second, if you've enjoyed this episode of our Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share it with your friends on social media. Third, Tick Bootcamp has created a tick by blueprint that has been inspired by the information that has been shared with us by past podcast guests. We urge you to visit our website at tickbootcamp.com to view our blueprint. Please note, we appreciate any input or improvements you would like to share with us. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify to get your automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. And finally, we thank you, our community, for your comments on our past podcast episodes. Please take a minute to leave us an honest review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, on social media, or on our website. We make it a point to read every single one of the reviews you share with us. As always, thank you for listening.